Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back, everybody. Oh, it's very, very exciting to have you here again. It's another episode of, of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. It's me. Um, once again, I just can't thank you all enough for for everything. I mean, it's all the letters and the and the feedback, and it's just truly, honestly, it's inspiring uh, to be just part of something that seems to mean something to people and. Uh, um, just please keep uh, keep listening, and hopefully you get you get something out of it. Cause I I know that I do. It's truly inspiring for me every time I do it. Um, I'm sitting here in front of in front of my guest, comedian Ben Glebe, executive producer of television, uh, actor, uh, voiceover artist, and and I'm looking at him. And as you guys know, I never prepare the intro. I I just kind of look into their soul and try to pull from them, essentially, the intro that I'm saying, the words, like I'm channeling their soul, essentially. I just reach deep and and, and then see what it, what it is that they say that makes me say the things that I say. It's like their words. You could quote them, even though it's me talking. You could give put quotes, but they're, because I'm, I'm literally yanking these words directly from their very essence and uh i'm looking at ben glebe right now and i know him since he was a very young man met met him when he was 18 in college and i don't know uh i don't know how to how to put into words the brilliance of this young man he uh 
He's uh, one of the greats, one of the, one of the world's great comedians. I mean, in the pantheon of uh, comedic icons, there's a few there's a few names that stand out. You've got Chappelle, of course. You've got Jerry Seinfeld. You've got Louis C.K. You've got Charlie Chaplin. Of course, you got one of the great quieter guy, but great. You got some of the Lucille Ball. Obviously, one of the one of the true legends, and I'd say Ben Glebe fits right into that mold. If there was a way to fit into that mold and to surpass the mold, it's like a pop over that you've cooked and you've let it cook too long, and all of a sudden it's overflowing beyond the beyond the dish itself. And it's like, is it even a, is, is it even still a pop over? Has it become a cake with a weird growth in the bottom of it because it's so exceeded your expectations that you don't know anymore what you're eating but all you know is that it's delicious and that you want more as America wants more of Ben Glebe every time they see him on the television and uh, it's a true it's a true joy it's a true joy to uh to be here and uh hey uh, um oh you guys, you guys ready to start yeah yeah I'm just chilling waiting for you man oh okay right yeah it's gonna be it's gonna be fun Honored to be here. Very excited to see you, buddy. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. Good to see you as well, Barry. <laughs> that does not sound like me. <laughs> Nothing that you hear of Ben Glebe sounds like me. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very excited because I look at my guest here, Ben Glebe, and it's been a long time since I've seen him. He travels all over the globe, but I hear his voice echoing in my brain all the time. I always say, if you want to find a great comedian or somebody who you think is going to have a shot at doing something special, when you listen to their voice, it's kind of like that old game show. I can name that song in one note, two notes, three notes. Think of every comedian you know that's made their mark on the business, and I could play literally one second of them, and you would be able to name who they are. And I always thought that Ben had that kind of voice where he was always going to be in a position to do great things if he could do a lot of hard labor, a lot of smart work, a lot of less sleeping with hot girls for hours and hours at a time, and maybe laying off the juice. But who knows? I never see him party that much, to be honest with you. But I go to his parties at his house, and they're amazing. The most beautiful women... People are smoking like African babinja weed out of some kind of African mask pipe in the back pool house. I don't know what's going on. You're hanging out with people's children who are legends like George Carlin's daughter and John Cleese's daughter. Just incredible. And then I show up and bring everything down. But true to form, as I look at Ben Glebe, I think of something that means something to me that I want to share with you. I've known Ben for a very, very long time. And when he cold called me at my New York office, probably somewhere between 10 and midnight one night, and I always work late, and I always point to probably a famous industry thing that people might know in our town, but maybe if you're not from this town, you don't know. Jeffrey Katzenberg, who's now at DreamWorks, who used to be at Disney, had this great, great line, which I always loved, and I always followed. And he said... If you don't come in on Saturday, don't bother coming in on Sunday when it came to your work ethic. And 
I saw something in Ben that was incredible because he was calling me all the time, hawking me all the time, and I picked up, and he told me of how his trajectory was and how he'd always dreamed of being a talk show host and always loved that medium. And he was talking to a guy who loved it himself. And he was telling me about a show he had down near the Mexican border where his school was in San Diego. And he was creating a live broadcast in his school, but not what the normal thing was where you'd be in the AV room or the studio. No, not Ben Glebe. He was figuring out how to do something in his dormitory. He was telling me how he didn't really know the first thing about television production, but he was stringing wires <laughs> and cables outside, around. I don't even know it was legal. And he needed a guest. And I was just inspired by Ben of what he was doing and about how he was so passionate about his dream. And I did everything I could to try to get him a guest. He asked me for a lot of different people who I couldn't deliver. But I believe I finally made a call to somebody who I knew was really, really a believer in young talent and a guy who made his mark early on at the Apollo Theater, even though he was a white guy. And that was Barry Sobel. And Barry Sobel had done the HBO Young Comedian specials. And if you ever look up Barry Sobel on YouTube, see if you can find a bit where he does an entire routine that is just telling you the punchlines of jokes. It's incredibly original and unique. And so Barry engaged Ben, agreed to do the show, and then had to back out at the last minute, but helped him get a comedian. And the relationship was born. And Ben would call me all the time, ask me advice. And throughout his years at college, he inspired me even more because I think his first show in the dormitory, if he had 50 people there, it would have been a miracle. And by his senior year, everybody, Ben Glebe outgrew the dormitory. And he had 3,000 people who came to his live show. And that just really blew me away. And throughout his process and going forward, he kept that dream going and eventually got a show with National Lampoon and started producing and putting together his own shows as a young man on this channel that went in colleges, I think over 500 or 1,000 colleges all over. And again, true to form with relationships, he asked me if he could have Dane Cook to be a guest on his show. And I asked Dane if he would do it to promote his first CD, Harmful to Swallow. He agreed to do it, and that relationship was born. And as Ben continued his career, so did Dane. And when Dane did his tour around arenas all over the country, who did he choose to be one of his opening acts? Ben Glebe. And I've had a lot of dealings with Ben throughout the years. He was in a situation where I think he wanted me to represent him a number of different times, and I didn't. And other people represented him, who I have a lot of respect for, great managers. And finally, we ended up working together when I was at a company in Burbank, and I wasn't exactly his point person. But then something happened there that I'll never forget. I got a call saying that, Something happened, and they weren't going to be working with him anymore. And I'll never forget that call. And that call really, really 
meant a lot to me because I'm paraphrasing, but I said, as long as I am alive, I will always represent you as long as you want me to represent you. And you don't have to worry about anybody not being there or supportive of you. I will be there for you if you need me, if you want me every step of the way. And we've been working together ever since. Sometimes when you get a little older, people remind you of things that happen. And Ben reminded me that I invited him to a special dinner at my house. I believe it was either Thanksgiving or Yom Kippur or something like that, some special occasion at my house. And I never really invite too many people. I'm a very private person. But I invited him, and I really didn't understand the significance of what I was doing at the time by inviting him, honestly, because probably he was at a moment where he felt a little low when things don't go well with a company and you think things are going to go well and then all of a sudden you get a call out of the blue and they don't feel like it's working. That can be depressing. And similarly, a moment that was obviously more tragic than that moment. But when I was in Boston and I lost my first wife, she passed away and I got a call from Louis C.K. And Louis C.K. said, Barry, get out of your house and come to my house right now. It's Christmas time. Come to my house. And I said, I just don't really feel like coming over. He said, if you don't come over to my house, I'm going to come there and physically get you. And I remember going over his house and being around people similar to Ben, who we didn't really know that well, and feeling loved, feeling cared for, feeling respected, feeling safe, feeling like somebody would care about me that much. And now I realize at that moment, that's what I felt in my heart. I wanted Ben to know that everything was going to be okay. And I want him to know, similar to Louis did for me, that you're never going to have to worry about anything. And I think that you'll realize something about Ben. Ben is a person who has been through a lot, has worked really, really hard for over 20 years at his craft, and right now is finally at the point where I think he could say, hey, I get to be an executive producer. I get to host a show that I love. I get to create things. I get to have relationships with people in the business who many people think are geniuses. And I get to inspire and make a lot of young comedians and a lot of young artists feel relevant and valid. And throughout that time, it all points back to the vision and the dream that he had as a young man of wanting to be a talk show host, wanting to host things, want to create things, and following through. And so I think if there's any lesson that I could wax in this long, cold open, it's the fact that Ben, to me, I get emotional about this because he symbolizes a lot in my life and hopefully symbolizes a lot in yours of what it's like when you're younger and you know you want to do something and a lot of people can't figure out what they want to do, how they want to do it. But Ben is the example for everybody of what you should do when you want something is just go and do it. You don't know how to run the wires, figure out how to run the wires. You don't know how to host a show, figure out how to host a show. 
when somebody cuts your legs out from under you. Hopefully you've created great relationships with people along the way and you haven't been an asshole to people and they want you to be at their house for a special occasion. And hopefully when you create those relationships, maybe there's somebody out there who might want to bring you on a tour of 80 arenas so you can perform in front of 15,000 people and know that you can do it. And so if you're out there, just remember hard work, relationships, fighting through adversity, don't be an asshole and have the kind of career that Ben Glebe has. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in showbiz and you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Before I get started, I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I'd ever done in my life. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. And his story is unbelievably extraordinary. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago when he was in his early 20s, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas to help them get where they needed to go, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. And I'm telling you, go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary, it will blow you away. And in honor of everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose one person randomly from that group of people, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, if they're out of the country or out of state, I will Skype them in, I will FaceTime you in, and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary, I guarantee you, never been seen before, and it will blow you away. All right, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. This is very exciting. Ben, could somebody wake Ben up? Okay, we're here, (laughs) and I'm going to introduce him, and this is going to be a long introduction. I'm so sorry. By the time we get to Ben, we'll have six minutes left (laughs) for the show, and it'll be a great show. Trust me. Okay, Ben Glebe is a talented stand-up comedian, actor, writer, producer, and director whose online videos have received more than 20 million views. 
I have like 72. <laughs> Esquire called him one of six comedians who could be comedy's next big thing. The other five were Aziz Ansari, Patton Oswalt, David Cross, Dimitri Martin, and Flight of the Concords. It came true for each one of them, and now it seems to be Glebe's time with GSN's Emmy-nominated comedy brain teaser game show, Idiot Test, in which he hosts, executive produces, and even writes some of the brain teasers. Now in his third season with over 145 episodes, it's the most watched original program on the network. Glebe currently is a regular on the Today Show with Kathy Lee and Hoda on their Guys Tell All segment. At Midnight with Chris Hardwick on Comedy Central is also a staple, and most recently he was a guest co-anchor for a week for ABC News Digital from ABC News Worldwide Headquarters in New York, which was an unusual gig for a comedian, but another example of why Ben is one of the most multi-talented comedians working today. For seven years, he was a roundtable regular on Chelsea Lately on E! with over 100 appearances. And he also played himself on a memorable episode of the E-scripted series After Lately, which I loved. He's been headlining comedy clubs around the globe since 2007 and has played sold-out arenas all over North America, opening for both Chelsea Handler and Dane Cook. And on TV on The Late Late Show, Last Comic Standing, Stand Up and Deliver, and twice on Last Call with Carson Daly. In 2006, he sold a pilot to Fox called The Glebe Show, produced by Saturday Night Live's Lorne Michaels and Broadway Video, which was based on a show he did for three seasons for the National Lampoon Network, and for four years before that in college, as we talked about at UC San Diego. Also in 2007, he starred in the primetime NBC comedy series The Real Wedding Crashers from Ashton Kutcher, and Jason Goldberg, who did Punked. Glebe has been an on-air contributor for CNN and won a Golden Mike Award for his work on Southern California's NPR's Pat Morrison Comedy Congress. An accomplished voiceover actor, Glebe is the voice of Marshall the Sloth in Ice Age Continental Drift, which is the number two biggest worldwide animated motion picture of all time. He's also done voices Dolly in The Book of Life, starring Channing Tatum, and is one of the stars of Kevin Smith's Jay and Silent Bob's super groovy cartoon movie, currently on Netflix. His voices have also appeared in Phineas and Ferb and the YouTube series The Melvin Brothers. His phenomenal podcast, Last Week on Earth, on the Smodcast Network, is every Wednesday where he hilariously summarizes news and politics, occasionally being joined by celebrity guests. The show debuted at number nine on iTunes Comedy, and was number one on Stitcher for over 20 weeks. In one of his more memorable hosting gigs, Glebe worked for the Oscars, hosting the Academy's first ever Oscar road trip, which was featured on ABC's Oscar pre-show. And finally, his first, and this is very, very wonderful, his first hour-long stand-up special will be premiering on Showtime this June 3rd at 10 p.m. entitled Ben Glebe, neurotic gangster please welcome my guest today a very very funny man multi-talented ben glebe barry thank you for that <laughs> no worries i'm sorry it was so long listen i'm very accomplished so i understand <laughs> takes a minute <laughs> no that was very sweet man that was uh that was cool what was going on before here when i walked in here oh no i was just waiting for you 
And that's about it. Got I was it. just waiting. You have a lot more energy in your voice today than I expected. This is a side note unrelated to anything. I get it up for Ben Glebe. Is that right? Yes. Something a girl has never said to her. <laughs> nor, nor should she, because they don't need to get things up. Point being, I'm doing fine. I don't need any pills for you. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's really sweet. It is. I appreciate that. The first thing I have to ask you is something that you're probably not going to expect that I'm going to ask. I honestly never see you out as much. The only time I see you socializing and really mixing and partying is at your own parties at your house. Mm -hmm. But every time I see you, you have this look about you like literally you have been up all night. <laughs> You've been drinking till dawn. You've had some supermodels ankles in two different zip codes for about 17 <laughs> hours and you're rolling in. Yet for some reason, when the red light goes on, you always put it together. We explain to me, is that just the way you are naturally? Or is there some truth to the fact that you are a hard living, loving guy who takes things to the limit in their personal life as well as their professional life? Yeah, I think it's both of those. I think I naturally have some bags under my eyes and look a little tired sometimes. But yeah, right now I'm on about three hours, 45 minutes of sleep, maybe Closer to four hours because I snoozed once. Um, but I wasn't partying last night. I just was at my house and was trying to watch a lot of news and absorb a lot of stuff and catch up on some shows I hadn't seen. And then at about three in the at about four thirty in the morning last night, I remembered, oh, I have two major voiceover auditions I have to record in my booth. So I then went and started studying and working on it, recording it and setting up the booth and finished recording at about six forty five in the morning and got to bed. So, yeah, both. I mean, I definitely have had harder partying phases in my life, more in my 20s, oh, and a lot of my 30s. But um, now I'm not partying as much. I'm in a more serious frame of mind, I would say. I've lost 20 pounds in the last two and a half months on this diet I'm on. I'm trying to get in uh, game game shape. What's the diet you're on? That's this thing called MyFit Foods, just a calorie restriction diet. Where they bring the food to your house? I have to pick it up. I have to pick it up because it's cheaper that way. But um, it's uh, normally I was probably eating, I was eating like jelly beans a lot of times in my house late at night watching TV. And uh, I was getting a lot of, I was probably eating 2,500, if not 3,000 calories a day. I'm down to 1,200 calories a day for the last two months. And uh, it's really working. I'm not working out at all. I do not have to lift a finger. I sit there and burn fat. It's the ideal workout plan, a non-workout. I recommend it to everybody. But um, yeah, I even when I... I'm having fun and enjoying going out a bit. I can always, for whatever reason, luckily pull it together, like you said, for performance reasons. And and for whatever reason, my whole life, I guess it's probably just like I already have a pretty neurotic and overactive brain. And whenever I have a big thing the next day, which is, of course, the worst time for this to happen, I cannot fall asleep. So often the biggest days of my whole life, like my live Glebe shows in college, like the first episode, the first day of taping Idiot Test. Um, any of these things, I often am on zero sleep. Like I couldn't fall asleep for a minute and I'll just go through a whole day and I can usually muster, I have a lot of energy and I can muster a lot of energy to pull through. And then I could even stay up late and go out for drinks after. And then I crash for about, you know, a good six, seven hours. Now, one of the things I find about you is that the things that I have worked on you with, and as a manager, one of the greatest joys of my life is being able to, executive produce and be a 
person on a show that an artist is working on is the greatest thing when they create it and you're working with them all the time. And when we worked on the special together, Mm -hmm. I was blown away by the amount of, I hope you don't mind me saying this, the amount of drama surrounding (laughs) prior to the show. I mean, it was probably the most dramatic, crazy time that I've ever experienced in my life, whereas Ben (laughs) invited a group of people to his show. Naturally, he had a guest list of family and friends, but Ben does everything to the hundredth power. So Ben doesn't just invite his mom, his dad, girlfriends, few friends. Ben has a guest list of literally 297 people when we have a place that holds 600 plus people have bought tickets. Right. Oh, that's true. I guess my personal list is about 300 plus we sold like 500 tickets. People want to do well. They want things the way they want them. When you're in a situation where you only have so many seats in the theater and he's like, you got to get all these people in. And it's my job as a manager to, I always say, don't spook the thoroughbred. Yeah, exactly. And so you're the thoroughbred. I got to figure out a way to make everything right while you're getting ready for your show. Presumably, you probably only got less than three hours sleep that night. Yep. And so you can do a great job. That was one of those times that, one of the many times that you've really come through and like calming me down and taking control of situations. One was the story you told in your cold open, which was really a very impactful day for me. You're right. Like I was just completely had the rug pulled out from under me and all of a sudden I'm, you know, well into my career and it felt like I didn't have good representation suddenly. And I called you and you instantly allayed that fear and said, you'd represent me as long as I wanted you to and invited me to your house. And immediately I was, I weight lifted off my shoulders and the same thing, the day of, of my special, I've worked towards for 16 years as a stand-up comedian and you got me the special and saw an opportunity for me to be able to do it and made it happen. And then you also said, as you should have, Van, there's not any money here for, uh, for, for, for marketing for an audience. So you have to really like use your network and your abilities to get people out there. I took that very seriously. And so I packed the place and, but I was pulling every favor I could think of to me. We had like two weeks notice. This was right after Chelsea lately ended. The run of the show literally ended. I believe it was on August 26th the show ended and idiot test premiered for the first season on august 12th two weeks of the day earlier and two weeks after chelsea ended i had to do the special and i only had about 10 or 11 days notice to put it together usually you get to prepare for a whole year leading to your special and i didn't have that chance and we had to we had to grab this opportunity as it came because opportunities you know don't wait around for you to prepare for them you have to just hop on board the train so and I would already had plans to go to Burning Man for four, for five days before the special. So I was going to come back and only have a few days to finish packing the place and, and to prepare the special and run it a bunch of times. And so I pulled in like every favor. My brother Ron has had these uh, restaurants that, that, that he runs in Santa Barbara. And I had him put out cards and asked, pulling favors, all these people. And the day of the special, I wake up and I have a million calls of people angry at me because I had to uninvite people and tell people they couldn't come. And my brother's calling me and saying, I've put my business relationships on the line. You can screw over my business here. I can't believe this. I had people calling me and saying, I asked my business contact to do you this favor. And I literally was overwhelmed. I'm not a particularly emotional guy. I cried the morning of my special in my house. I was, I was in bed and I was so overwhelmed. And, and the only thing that makes me like get to that level was letting people down. I don't ever want to disappoint people. And the fact that people were trying to help me and I would have to then inconvenience them just 
threw me for a real loop and I was like real emotional and f screwed up by it. And it was such an important day. I didn't know how to like be in a great zone. But I always know when I'm doing anything, and again, this is a very specific thing that isn't normal for probably our audience, but when you have a theater, let's say it holds 500 people, and let's say you have 700 people, right? you can always figure out a way to make things happen with a little extra cash in your pocket, right? a little bit of a good relationship with the people at the theater, treating them right, and something that people don't realize you have backstage. I called you when this was happening, freaking out, and you literally said to me, this was like at 11 a.m., I was still in L.A. in my apartment, my tiny little one-bedroom apartment in Hollywood I lived in for too long until Brian Cranston inspired me out of it And um, when he was a guest on my podcast and put me in my place. Um, and uh, you said, Ben, don't worry about it. Don't even think about it once more the rest of the day. Forward everybody to me, every email, give out my cell phone number, I'll take care of it. And um, I literally just trusted you 100% on that and relaxed. I had the greatest day. My friend Lauren Marie came in to come with me, and we just drove and had a lovely road trip and got in the greatest mindset ever and had one of the best sets of my entire life that night. That's an incredible special. you got to check it out. It's Neurotic amazing. Gangster. Showtime running on demand. Get it right now. June 3rd yep. on Showtime. All right. Something I want to ask you about also that's very, very unique to you is that you get to be around a lot of people who I consider to be really driven artists. Talk about Chelsea, you talk about Dane Cook. These people are as driven as it comes. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you as an artist are attracted to those kind of people as opposed to the people who might be brilliant let's say, like Chappelle, but Chappelle lives his life on the pace he wants to live it and still creates genius moments, but isn't like the kind of guy who is waking up at 5.30 in the morning, okay, how do I start writing, doing this, okay, until like 2 in the morning. That's right. not his style. Are you more attracted to the kind of artists out there that are insanely driven hard workers who seem to get three hours sleep? I am. I mean, I think those are the only kind of people that I really understand their perspective. That's the way that I am and the way I see the world. And both of those examples, Dane and Chelsea, both are also people that really enjoy their lives, too. And I think that I've always been that kind of person. I just burn the candle at both ends, as do both of them. And... Uh, I don't understand when people don't work hard when they're working on something. I can be as lazy as anybody when I don't have a project going. I love to sleep in and do nothing and chill and, you know, hang out with friends and have some drinks or smoke some weed and relax. But when I have a project I'm working on, I give it a thousand percent. I just give it everything I possibly can. And I think one of the biggest things probably that society lacks is that ability to like deliver in the clutch and to really give your all when you have that ability to do it, when you have that that window to come through. And I think so many people are already making excuses from second one and the second that, that they start working on it, they're already only giving, you know, 70%. They're already complaining about the opportunity. And so then they are upset when it doesn't get received well or why people don't like it or why it isn't their best work. And like probably the biggest thing that's frustrated me in my whole career, if I've ever clashed with people, and I have, it's when I'm working with people whose egos are bigger than their talent, whose egos are bigger than their work ethic. I think it's so insane. So often I find, like, if I've ever clashed with people, it's happened when I'm working on a show or something with, with somebody who gets offended by how intense I am, who gets annoyed by how 
much I want this thing to be as good as possible. And so I'm expecting everybody to be at the top of their game and give give a thousand percent and to work longer hours. And I'm always the last one to leave the office and I don't want it to be that way. It shouldn't have to be that way. You only live one life and no matter what role you're playing, every role is equally valid as long as you're delivering and bringing the most to that role. So even if you're, you know, uh, somebody who's producing a small segment on a show or you're somebody who is working in an office anywhere to, I think to be proud of your life, you have to know that each day you left it all on the table. And you know that you did the best that you could and made it the best product. Otherwise, you're wasting your time. You're just like literally using your own life as filler, which is insane. It's your one chance. So I don't like that when and oftentimes I find that people then will will react strangely and will um, use it as an excuse to continue that status quo, that mediocrity that, that they're doing by acting like, oh, Ben's being a diva by being so neurotic or or. Ben saying, you know, we get we need to do this or should we do this? And he's like asking so many questions and why can't he just like be more relaxed? And it's like, because we're trying to create like art. We're trying to create like entertainment for millions of people. It's serious. It's going to either be horrible and a waste of people's time in their lives, their precious time, or it's going to be brilliant and amazing. And they're going to want to see more and they're going to be so glad they gave their time to us. So I find a lot of times that people will try to, you know, keep distance between between themselves and letting and someone who's trying to like push them and so i don't like that kind of person so i mean everybody i like everybody but i don't want to work with or be around that kind of person as much as possible so people like dane cook and chelsea handler are hard workers they really know what they want they're very very driven they they take their lives and careers very seriously and then when the work day is done they know they can relax and let loose and party and have a good time and they certainly both do a lot of that and I've had amazing fun times with both of them I mean not anybody who works harder than Chelsea Handler not anybody that parties harder than Chelsea Handler I mean she did ayahuasca in her documentary on Netflix one of the most insane hallucinogenic drugs on earth and it didn't affect her she had to go back again to like smoke. so she has got quite a quite a talent on both ends of the spectrum and meanwhile, Dane Cook has never done a drug or taken a drink in his life. Right. Yet he and I have been to so many parties together. And I, it's incredible that we're in environments like he and I had a, had a phase many years ago when we were close. And uh, he, he and I would go out to nightclubs in L.A. He really enjoyed that, that scene. And I was, he and I were just becoming friends. And I was tagging along with him a lot. And I don't like nightclubs particularly. I think they're way too loud and way too expensive and way too noisy and way too many people there and uh but if you're gonna do it you may as well do it with dane cook where you don't have to wait in any line you walk right in you get escorted to the vip booth and you have free alcohol at night that's the way to do it and we're sitting there and we're chilling with all these crazy people and partying with paris hilton and all these insane people and and uh dane's just observing it sober and i found it fascinating i don't know how you don't want to have different vibes i like to have different vibes i like to mix it up <laughs> Tell me three people in your life that work harder than you. In my life that I know that I work with? Chelsea Handler for sure. So she's a harder worker than you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Her work ethic makes me feel very lazy. Um, who else works really hard? Um, I mean, Dane, you know, works very hard as well. A uh, third person that works harder than me. Um, Craig Brooks. Our showrunner on Idiot Test is a very, very hard worker, a uh, really smart, creative, 
awesome guy and he's one of those people too that doesn't want to stop until the product's perfect and i love that so much awesome tell me a moment in your life being around another comedian who was more famous than you where you were with them and you left that night and got in your car or went back to your hotel and you said to yourself this person's not going to be around much longer and they weren't i've known comedians who passed away but not not from not that i knew it was from any sort of substance or anything the only example i can really think of was i was um performing i was supposed to just host and open up the indecision i think it was 2000 tour indecision no maybe indecision 2004 tour in florida university of florida or something and the middle act was going to be james adomian as george w bush and the headliner was greg draldo and i never met greg although we'd been on a pilot together and i always admired him thought he was hilarious and then um i got a call an hour before the show from my agent saying greg is sick and can't do it you're gonna headline the show and so suddenly a domain was opening for me and i'm headlining the show and i never even met greg that day and obviously you know he passed away you know tragically so i mean that's the only example i can think of i don't i don't even know how he passed away i don't i, I again i didn't know him i don't know any of, the, any of the details as to why that happened but i remember thinking at the time like i bought about the story that oh he's just he has like a stomach flu this business has a way of taking years off your life that's true yeah i try to avoid that too i mean i definitely know how to enjoy myself hey everybody let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success it's a project i've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition whether you want to do stand-up sketch improv acting writing producing directing radio social media influencing or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. I remember when I interviewed Chris Thompson, I said, are you surprised you're still alive? And he said, yeah, I had a bet on myself that I was going to go at 33. <laughs> and he died a couple of months later. But oh, wow. Do you look at yourself and the artists that you see out there that live a happy, productive life in the business, but they also enjoy themselves outside of the business? Do you look at them and yourself as somebody, hey, I'm going to be like Don Rickles. I'm going to be 90. I'm going to be performing in Montreal. Or do you look at yourself as a guy who's like, I might not have the longest life, 
Oh, I look. I'm 100% Don Rickles. I mean, I fully know that I will be 80 years old performing, hopefully at that point, to huge theaters that I can just do one gig and come back home to my family. But I will be performing always for sure. And there are guys that don't have that drive and it won't happen. I mean, Chris Porter one time told me a great... Chris Porter is a comedian who was on Last Comic Standing. Very funny guy. Great guy. Great Netflix special called Angry and Ugly, I believe, or something like that. And... um really really awesome guy that should be my special <laughs> he and i were doing a gig together in columbia columbia missouri stop showing off <laughs> it was the highlight and we were driving through in his convertible and he told me the story and i was talking about how you know it's fun to indulge yourself on the road a little bit but it's kind of a hard balance sometimes and he said to me that bob hope one time said that there are comedians who want a top level career and the success in comedy that they've always dreamed of and there are comedians that want to get laid on the road and are all about the girls and they each got what they wanted interesting and uh, so i think that's true i remember you know i i created what a lot of people think is one of the best comp live comedy brands comedy juice yeah that's right in the country comedy juice we do shows around the country and and what's odd about ben if i could interrupt him yeah. for a second when you're somebody who produces a live show and you are an artist there have been times in this strange few decades that we've had where comedy has never been better, where you're looked upon in a way that's not in a positive light, that you can't possibly be a great stand-up comedian and artist if you produce a live show. And so Ben and his partner <laughs> created this thing, Comedy Juice, about 15 years ago, and very, very few people know that he created it and mm -hmm. he created the brand and he does it and it's still a money-making situation. And just recently, I noticed that you just started saying it again because I guess when you get to a certain point, you're hosting and executive producing and doing a special, then you don't have to worry about it anymore. That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, I think success in this business, you need to have a certain amount of self-awareness to know whether or not you're succeeding to know how you're being how you're resonating with people you can't exist just in a bubble i mean maybe the most pure artist in the world can and it'll be great and maybe he'll become huge or maybe he'll die completely alone and unknown and no one will ever know the person existed i think you have to check in and see if the things you're doing are indeed resonating and i know um that when i started the brand at first i needed it and my face was all over it and i was hosting comedy juice every week when it started the laugh factory as college night and then to the improv where it became Comedy Juice, and I named the brand, and Scott Richardson and I created it. What and was the second choice for a name? I don't think there was. But I'm, I'm good at titles. I just close my eyes, and I'm like, Comedy Juice would be a cool name. And um, What would you name this show? I named it Industry Standard. What would you have named it? I would name it uh, Moving the Needle <laughs> with Barry Katz. Got it. Okay, just checking. Um, and... Um, and people might think it's a quilting podcast and it would be quite unentertaining for people. And uh, so I created this brand. I was all over it and I really needed that stage time to help build my career. And then I just was hitting a plateau and I knew I could just tell that people in this business, typically when you promote and produce good stand -up comedy shows, you're all about the production. This business loves to put people in boxes. They don't have the, the, the ability to see people as multi-talented. They don't have the ability to to consider that, oh my God, is it possible someone who's good at business could also be a, a good artist? And so I could just tell that people were not taking my comedy seriously. It's a funny phrase because comedy does need to be taken seriously if you want to get somewhere. 
And so I just went on deep background. We started hiring interns and then employees and I stopped working on the company completely. I stopped booking the shows, stopped telling people I had anything to do with it and just literally disappeared and didn't mention my name with Comedy Juice for about seven years. And um, that's when my career really started to take off and it worked. And like you said, only in the last couple of years have I been comfortable enough and where I am and feel established enough that I now I'm happy to talk about it. But coming from the angle of being somebody who for so many years booked comedians, I've saw the other side of it of what I always wanted and wondered why I wouldn't get booked certain rooms or whatever. And, and you really get a sense of what it is that takes, that it takes to make it. And also the, the pitfalls people have. And like you said about partying too much, I remember one time a comedian whose name I won't mention gave me a tape and was dying to get on comedy juice. And it's funny having to like explain to people why they can't get it. Like one comic one time gave me a tape and his hand, he kept putting his hand nervously in his pocket throughout the set. And I'm like, you look nervous. You're constantly putting your hand in your pocket. But this one comedian who I won't mention gave me his tape and I watched it and it was just not good. It was so way too loose for the place he was in his comedy. And he was just talking to the crowd without great jokes and being real dirty for no reason. And the next week he's like, you look at that tape. And I said to him, and I, whenever I can, try to be very honest with people because no one's benefited by being bullshitted. It's literally, it's another thing that's wrong with society too much is we just talk around shit and we talk behind people's back and into their face. We're like, no, no, it's great. I'll, I'll get you on the show. And no one's going to get better from that. Like, even if I'm in an Uber, I was in an Uber a little while ago and the Uber smelled horrible. And I don't want to ruin this guy's career by giving him one star and, and screwing up his average rating. So I did the hard thing and not, didn't talk behind his back. I said to him, look, I'll give you five stars, buddy, because I want you to have a good rating, but your car smells horrible. There's a body odor in here that is really not good. You're having customers you can't. He said, really? I have no idea. No one ever told me that. Thank you so much for telling me. And his cab, I guarantee, will never smell bad again. So this comedian, and I said to him, I'm like, look, I put your tape in, and you're just talking. There's not enough jokes. There's nothing original in your premises. I can't book you on one of the best shows in the country where you're performing alongside Dave Chappelle and Louis C.K. and Sarah Silverman. I just can't do it. And he literally like, like broke down, was so touchy. He's like, thank you, man. No one's been honest with me like that. Can I, can I be honest, man? It's just I, just, I just love pussy. I'm just more focused on pussy. I can't help it. And that's what my, where my focus is. You, you're right. And he had so much respect for me. He and I were so cool after that. Way closer of a vibe after that than you would have been by not being straight with somebody. So always is better to tell him like it is i sometimes worry about that because i have a reputation of being too straight oh you're the king of that you tear people down in a great honest way that inspires them or they kill themselves it's, <laughs> it's one of the two i've heard so many people tell me oh you're, you're managed by barry katz are you kidding me he sat me down one time and i had a list of all these things i'd accomplished and i came back to him with the list of the exact <laughs> things barry said i should do the last year and he sat down and he goes this is nothing what is this? You're about accomplishing as about as much as a guy in a fucking coma. <laughs> Some people in comas accomplish more like Terry Schiavo became a national story. And you're sitting here and you've got 25 Twitter followers. That and, that and a nickel will buy you a nickel crumb of a piece of chicken that fell off of somebody's chicken. And they're confused by the analogy, but they kind of get the general idea they got to work harder. <laughs> well, I remember I did the same thing with you. You brought me all your yeah. tapes from the National Lampoon show, yeah. and I obliged you, and at late one night, I looked at all of them, yeah. and I sat you down, and I basically... It was the greatest moment. You gave us a tour of New Wave, where you used to work, <laughs> the company that you helped start, and we gave us a tour of this whole place, and I was being treated like a king. I'm like, oh my God, Barry's showing us the tour, and you showed us a copy of Dane Cook's pilot, and asked for my thoughts on it, and Scott 
Richardson and I um, then gave you this tape. And we're like, and you're like, what can I do for you? What do you, and you, and you got a thing on your desk that said, never give up. And you're like, Ben, the thing I love about you is you never give up. I still have that on my desk. I bet you do. And, um, and you said, look, what, what I need to do, I'm like, just look at these this one hour of footage. Maybe that's too much to give somebody. <laughs> Maybe we should have given you five minutes. But I really wanted you to see like the whole sense of the talk show and different highlights we've done over the three seasons at Lampoon. And you said, like, look, you're not my client, so I probably shouldn't even say this, but um, I'm going to watch this hour. And if there's anything at all that I like in here, I'm going to help you sell it. And we never heard from you again for many <laughs> years. So, you know, you have to also realize, too, you can't let, as much as I was kind of annoying you can't let your ego <laughs> sour yourself to people who are going to keep it straight with you because i always know where i stand with you too i know if you say something's good that is good so a lot of people would say fuck that guy i'm never going to talk to him again many not, do many do <laughs> and i'm not going to work with him again and i'm the opposite i i thought okay that he clearly didn't want to sell this thing or he forgot about it but down the road you if, could never let me forget about anything but <laughs> I came back into your good graces, and I think you finally saw the light and realized, had your come to Jesus moment, and realized how great I am, and <laughs> you had to work with. Yet you, you need a piece of this business. When you're a manager, you work with a lot of people. Sometimes there's people who come to you that already are making good money, and they want you to service what they're doing, and they want you to help them with things in the future. And then there's artists you work with, and they're not really making that much money, and you can add up all the hours you put in and you might end up adding up to 76 cents an hour. That for you, a long that, time, I was one of those. For right? a long time, but I never, I think part of my philosophy in management has always been, don't worry about the money. The money will come. If I keep doing what I always do, the money will come. Just worry about the artist being great and doing great work. And if the artist, you can get them to a point where they're doing great work and people believe in them, then everything will come true and all the dreams will happen. And I think for you, one of the things I want to share with the audience, I say this sometimes in this podcast, ad nauseum. That would be a great name for the podcast, ad nauseum with Barry Katz. Ad nauseum, that's right. That's a good one. <laughs> the biggest job that a manager has or any artist is turning no's into yeses. It's what it is all the time. And I can't, remember a time where there was any artist I worked with that had a hundred percent of the people in town saying yes to what they wanted to do. Your hope is that there's at least one that says yes. And then you can have others that maybe want to say yes because they said yes. But even with Chappelle, there were many people who said no to what he wanted to do, but there were also many that said yes, and he was a genius. Louis C.K., when he pitched the Louis show, do you think every network said, yes, let's do the Louis show? No, only one said yes. And at first it was HBO, and he had that failed sitcom yeah. on HBO, and then had to restructure it, and luckily got that deal at FX. And so that's the way it is. So with Ben's special, to me that's a dream come true. The dream come true for me or for any artist or anybody listening shouldn't be when things come easy. The dream come true should be when things are really hard and then they finally happen and then you're on the cusp of millions of people seeing what you do. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really excited for you about that. Me too. I'm really excited.
I think overall it, it just wasn't the easiest for us to get the special sold. And I think part of it is because of all the things that I do. Like we said earlier, people don't always see you in the light that you want to be seen. And, it, and it's hard for them to – so a lot of people don't even know that I do stand-up. And that's my biggest passion. And that's the my soul is stand-up comedy. And I'll do it till I die. And I think that people – because I do a lot of, even within my own act, I don't have one particular type of joke I do. I don't have one voice I go to all the time. I don't have one style in my act. I do a little bit of everything in my act. I do a lot of improv, do a lot of crowd work. I remember years ago, I couldn't even get on Comics Unleashed, which is not a very hard show to get on, because they said, we love Ben. He's really funny with his crowd work, but does he have material? And I had two and a half hours of material at the time. That was great stuff. But I wasn't presenting in this cleanly packaged way that the industry could just easily see it and say, oh, of course, these jokes are his great killer jokes are going to work well this way. I like to be a lot looser. I like to be a lot freer. And that's one of the things where we butt heads a lot in your career is the fact that my philosophy in stand-up is not always popular, but I love watching people do crowd work. I started my career with Paula Poundstone, mm -hmm, one, one of, of the greatest crowd work people you will ever see in your entire life, and I don't think there's anyone better. But also, Paula does a ton of regular material, and yes, she's done great HBO specials where she's worked the crowd, and she's also done great specials where she's done all material. But in this time of stand-up, the way it is and how competitive it is, I do not believe that crowd work is going to get you where you want to go. The only way I see it getting a comedian where they want to go is if that's all they do and they're known as, hey, like an old comic who was so great, he worked at The Tonight Show for so many years, one of the nicest guys, Jimmy, Jimmy Brogan. Brogan, all crowd work all the time. Mm -hmm. Why don't you search how many late-night sets and how many hour specials Jimmy Brogan has? Right. You won't find them. And then so the fact with you, with the special, one of the things I was really, really conscious of and I was really wanted you to present to people, you can always work a crowd when you're doing a live show. You can always do it. It'll be unexpected. It'll be fun. But for your hour special, what you're going to be judged on is the content. And everybody out there, no matter what you do in this world, you're judged on by the work that you create, whether you create it for other people or you create it for yourself. And so crowd work is an improvisational thing. It could be argued, hey, well, improv, I'm creating. I'm doing something. Think to yourselves, all the listeners out there, take 100% pie of all the comedy content, the live comedy content, that you've ever seen on television and tell me what percent of it is improv. It's like 1% of 1% of 1%. And if you take away whose line is it anyway, <laughs> it's less of a percent of that. The content and the words and the stories are paramount. And if you can create great stories in your standup that move people and inspire people, you're going to get a lot farther than if you say, hey, sir, what do you do for a living? You're, you're, <laughs> you're probably still right about that, but it's probably still something that we butt heads on because A, I made sure that, that the special does have some crowd work in it. 
and I'm very proud of that part of it even more than a lot of the bits. And, you know, like I said, like I do all these different things in my act. I do, you know, some political, not much in my stand-up, but I do observational. I do some dirty stuff. I do some silly stuff, some surreal stuff, and some crowd work. And I just don't want in the most free of all art forms to have to be that calculated with the way I present it. I just have to kind of do what I do. And I made peace years ago now with the fact that I just have found my style and my style is that mixture. And, you know, as much as I hear what you're saying, you're not necessarily creating in when you're doing crowd work stuff that lasts forever in, in the lexicon doesn't burn into the cultural zeitgeist. But at the same time, you also are giving people a rare, unique, once-in-a-lifetime experience. And the best, you know, comment I get when people leave my live shows is like, I've never seen a comedian do that. I've never seen a comedian be that quick off the cuff and that and that in the moment and literally creating. And I, I, I grant you more than anything, there's nothing worse than shitty crowd work. There's nothing worse than boring, generic crowd work. But I've always prided myself on when I do it, it's the ultimate high-wire act, and I try to find brand-new, creative, new ways to do it and to talk to people and engage people not on the obvious but to get to something different you haven't seen before and that's just something i do so granted it that is a big reason why it took me 16 years of stand-up to get a special is that i wasn't known for my material i didn't have as many classic bits that got out there that you saw on the tonight show or that you saw on letterman you know i missed that chance to get on letterman and i always wanted because i wasn't i guess honed to that degree um with presented tv clean good stuff i've got oodles of material but it's just delivered in a bit of a looser style and um but it does lead to other kind of work it's led to all my other work it led to the real wedding crashers and improv hidden camera show it led to all the hosting work i've gotten it's led to idiot tests where in half of every single episode while you're it's one of the rare shows on tv where you think and it really challenges your brain with these brain puzzles and then the other half of each episode is an improvised comedy i mean i literally the, the network lets me go crazy and each episode I've had now soon 145 half hours air where it's a showcase for my improv, and that's what I've honed in my stand-up. So I'm fully aware that there's been a trade-off to the trajectory of my stand-up based on that, and it made it a much more uphill climb for us to get that special sold and get that special to be seen by everybody. But uh, now that we have it, and the, and the special's 95% material, I'm hoping this is finally the moment that people realize, oh shit, he's got really great material and hopefully I'll become, you know, a lot more people's favorite stand-up in addition to hopefully they already like the things I do in other areas. I think they will. Well, all right, let's go way, way back because I want to talk about your life because this is going to be very inspirational for people because... Normally, when you're seeing people on television or you're watching them, you have no understanding of the trials and tribulations and the defeats along the way and the obstacles that they go through. So I want you to tell our audience, go way, way back, how you grew up, what area you grew up in, the socio-dynamic thing, your family and your first inspiration for doing comedy and continue into the obstacles that you went through as a child to get where you want to go. Well, I was, uh, I was born in, in Chugiak, Alaska. I, w I had no arms, no legs. I was a stump boy. I was referred to as stump boy by most people that I met. And they would, I, would, I, wouldn't even, I couldn't even go to school. I had to be rolled to school. <laughs> I would, <laughs> um, no, I was born in L.A. I'm, I'm one of the few 
uh, LA natives in this in this entertainment business that's from here and stayed here. And um, I moved. My parents got a house in Beverly Hills when I was five years old because they wanted us to go to good the best public schools they could find and didn't have the money for private schools. And at the time, you could get in to what I call South Central Beverly Hills for really cheap. You could get a house for like a totally normal amount of money somehow. There was this downtime in the in the real estate market. And so literally, both geographically and economically, I lived in a just very lower middle class part of Beverly Hills. You know, my parents made, my dad made um, for, I think, a lot of my life as a kid between like thirty and $50,000 a year only. Yet I'm living in the richest city in the world. And I'm going to high school with Rod Stewart's kid. And I go down and you see snakeskin cowboy boots sticking out the window of some SUV. And it's Rod Stewart there to pick up his kid and Rachel Hunter in the driver's seat. And, and uh, it was very interesting to see that dichotomy and to see people who had everything in the world and to see all the rich Persian dudes that literally had so much money. They A lot of people don't understand that after the revolution, I think in 73 or 74, an enormous influx of Persians came to Beverly Hills. So right. Beverly Hills is probably, could be argued, 33% to 50% Persian. Totally. I mean, I feel like I grew up in Iran. I mean, I'm on several terrorist watch lists just because <laughs> of growing up in a beautiful city here in L.A. Um, I, uh, and with that joke made with all respect because I have two Persian ex-girlfriends both Muslim, both the hottest things on earth. I mean, Persian women is nothing better, and they're lovely people. But how they, come they're not as hairy as the men? I think a lot of electrolysis, probably a lot of laser hair removal. I don't know. I don't know if that's even true. I don't know. I never saw them even get hair removed. But I don't know. Maybe it's just something God wanted them to be hairless little Persian cats. I don't know. We're digressing. The point is, <laughs> the face you just made was part horror, part huge intrigue. Absolutely. I'm going to swipe right now. You should. Um, and uh, so I grew up, you know, went to high school with all these guys. I like, remember this guy, Mike Hakim, on my high school football team would come out. He's one of our captains. He's brilliant, but like just a ridiculous guy. Ladies, man would come out without his, we'd like late for practice. You know, football's like an army and he'd come out late for practice. His pants unbuttoned, his pads under his arms, helmet under his pocket. Like, sorry, I'm late, dudes. I was there with all these bitches, man. It's crazy. They were all over my hairy chest, man. They loved it. We were in my Range Rover. And I came late. Sorry, coach. <laughs> and he was just so good. You couldn't get too pissed. You had to like run a bit. But And so I was in that environment. And then starting as a young kid, I always wanted to be an entertainer. I started as an impressionist. You know, I was doing 100 impressions of celebrities when I was like, by the time I was seven or eight years old and always knew how to make people laugh. And I was fascinated since I was a kid with people with Johnny Carson and with George Carlin. I mean, George Carlin, I discovered a tape. It was this Playing With Your Head album my brother and I would listen to over and over again. It's filthy, but hilarious, but brilliant album that we memorized when I was a kid. And I just thought his sense of logic was the best I'd ever heard. And just the way he would take a logical point to make some, to make, point out the idiocy in something in the most hilarious of ways. He would just eviscerate a topic through his words and through his ideas and angles and the way he'd write and be musical with his words and really like make uh, really like uh, an orchestral arrangement with the way he would deliver. He wouldn't just tell jokes like most comedians say are just very droll and don't do anything with their voice. And I try and be more creative with my voice as inspired by Carlin because he would do, you know, he would sing jokes. And he'd be like, oh, and I said, I'll see you then soon. Bullshit, Klaus. I mean, the thing was like a radio show. And 
Johnny Carson was the was somebody I was so fascinated by because he was just the most hilarious and charming host I'd ever seen in my life. And the way he would just host this show in this natural, easygoing way that was just so funny and made you feel like you were in on a conversation privately with these huge celebrities. And I was fascinated by both of those guys. And then, of course, as I got into high school, David Letterman became a huge influence. And I knew from age five or six I wanted to be an entertainer and be a comedian. And... I hit this huge roadblock because a very bad speech problem developed in my life. And I was, when did it develop? I mean, it started, I think as early as like three and four years old. I, you so know, you had it from the first time you were speaking. I was speaking at nine months. My, my mom says that I was speaking full paragraphs at nine months. Uh, I think I've always been a bit of a, bit of a talker. <laughs> but then two years later, something happened. Did they know what happened? No, I think maybe like four or five is when it really started to get bad. Um, they don't know. There's different theories as to what happened, but it was beyond a stutter. I had a stutter, but also a disfluency where I couldn't even make sound come out of my vocal cords for on and off different points in my life throughout but a lot of my life. There's different theories. Some people think, think I wasn't tending to one hand or the other. So teachers suggested I become left-handed. And to this day I am left-handed and I can't write at all well with my left hand. I have the worst handwriting. People with something, maybe like my wires got crossed to some degree. I don't know. Um, so no doctor could figure out what happened, why yeah. it happened then, and is there an official name to the condition? Disfluency was really what it was. It's called disfluency. Right, and a stutter. I know this is really odd me asking this because you started off as a kid, you probably doing hundreds of impressions for your family. Mm -hmm. Would you mind sharing with our audience what you sounded like when this was happening to you? Sure, I mean, it was. it's unpleasant to hear really, but, but if you can bear through it, um, it would be, so let's say I was talking to you. You're approaching me in the hallway at school and say hi to me as, as you're walking by. Hey, Ben, what's happening? <laughs> hi, Barry. Like that. And that was good if I was able to even get out the hi, Barry, after 10 seconds. Now, I noticed that you touched your right eye yeah. when you did that. Now, this is something that I've heard about. Why don't you explain to the audience what that's about, what happens when you touch your eye and then you talk? Um, I guess a lot of people with speech problems you develop or any issues like this, you develop little like ticks or little ways to kind of clear it or just things that automatically happen. I don't know, but I developed this way when I solved the speech problem well into college and I started doing my own TV show and had my own late night talk show that was patterned after Letterman and Carson. And on air, I would have speech problem and I would hit blocks and I just developed this way. Like I would just touch my eye and for some whatever reason, touching the corner of my right eye would like, I don't know, neurologically would do something that would get rid of that block. So no doctor told you to do that. No, 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 no. It just came out of nowhere. Okay. So you're young, you have this condition, obviously not a very popular kid. There's not many popular kids who have speech conditions. Right. It's very difficult. Yeah, well, certainly bullied a ton. Horrible, beaten up a little bit. But then you go on into high school and you still have this vision of doing a talk show and that kind of thing in your own way. But you're still like somebody would call on you in class in high school, like a teacher would call on you in class and that same thing would happen to oh, you. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was just the most. I think it's probably a great part of why I have this like ridiculously steely confidence on stage now nothing can phase me on stage you know i just recently did joe coy's podcast and 
Josh Wolf was on there too, and they both said like something about you we noticed early. It's like we were I was always like stunned. Where did this confidence come from on stage? You had this insane level of confidence in your jokes. And it's because I went through, you know, twenty two years essentially of being called on to speak, getting the floor, getting the stage, and literally not being able to talk and people laughing hard and being so awkward and the most incredible, like overwhelming, overcoming like sense of nervousness and embarrassment would come but you still have to be there. You, you can't run out of the room when you're sitting in class. You, and so you had, to, I had to learn to endure just this enormous onslaught of pressure and energy and awkwardness and mockery really coming at you. And it just makes you stronger because you walk out of that class and you're still alive and you can still walk and you can still, no one hates you because of it. It's just, you, it was an embarrassing moment, especially as you get older, people become a little bit less petty and ju let, judge you less for things like that. And so... I started realizing, wow, if I can get through that, someone not laughing at a joke, and then I can make fun of myself or go on to the next joke and get a laugh in a second, I do not care in the least. And it made me, you know, have, I think, a really huge success rate in my stand-up, even starting early on. I didn't bomb for nearly as long as most comedians did. Maybe for like a month or two I bombed when I started doing open mics and then figured it out and was crushing my sets because I just had gotten past so much worse. Well, what's fascinating is when you go, let's say, to a 7-Eleven and you have your chips and your Snapple and whatever, a sandwich, and you bring it to the counter, you don't have to talk. You don't have to engage. Here's my stuff, whatever. But it's interesting how this was a foundation for later things because in class, it's almost improvisational in the sense where when you're in class, you don't know if the teacher is going to call on you. You might not raise right. your hand, then right. you might be called on. Oh, yeah. They might walk over to you. And so you're in a situation where it's like a shotgun at you and you have to speak. What was the percentage of times where this thing engulfed you and what was the percentage where it just didn't happen? I mean, there's a huge percentage that it engulfed me and became a problem to the point where even towards the last couple of years of high school and even the first few years of college, I had to go up to my teachers eventually and say, very beginning of the quarter please never call on me i have a bad speech problem and it's just too embarrassing and too hard to handle and if i ever raise my hand it means i'm feeling relaxed in that particular moment and call on me then if you want because i'll have i think i'll be able to probably speak but they would still call on you and some teachers would say i'm, I'm sorry it's participation part of the class or other teachers i wouldn't have the confidence to say that too and they would call on me anyways and and it was a huge amount but yet somehow still i was like making people laugh and i was still the class comedian because it would come and go. It was very dependent. I would go to speech therapists. They would teach you physical tricks to get rid of these blocks. What were the tricks? It was stuff like put an H sound in front of harder sounds like M's or B's or V's that are harder to make because H's open your vocal cords. So instead of saying, Mom, I'm very hungry, you say, Mom, I'm very hungry. And I never tried it even once. I'm like, that sounds ridiculous. I'm going to sound, I'd rather not speak. And so I just didn't do it. And I knew that for me, the problem was that I was too concerned with being perfect and presenting well. And it was much more shallow. I was concerned about coming off well instead of focusing on the content of what I was saying. Instead of caring about being the fact that I was a messenger for an idea, for a thought, I was all about the presentation. Does it sound good? Are they judging? How's it coming off? It was far too ego-based. You know how sometimes there'll be a child that wets their bed? And they might be nine, they might be 10, they might be 12. And with confidence, whether there's parents out there or aunts and uncles, you can say to the child, this is going to end. 
you're not going to be wetting right. the bed when you're 18. Right. It's just going to go away. One day it's going to go away. The speech therapist, did they say to you, Ben, I know this is tough now, but you're going to laugh about this because it's going to go no. away. Hell no, because they don't know because there's plenty of adults that, that stutter all the way through their lives. So they couldn't give me that guarantee. And But I knew I'd figure it out. I never was afraid I wouldn't figure it out. I mean, there were times where I was like very frustrated. And of course, there were sad times as a child where I was like, God, I have all this like humor in me and things I want to say to entertain people and I can't get it out. And I certainly hope I get past this one day. But more than anything, I knew I would. I just knew it was this enormous puzzle. Like life gave me this incredible riddle to figure out and I had to find out how to get rid of this block and and um get to where I would. And like I said, a lot of it was based on confidence and vibe. Like in, I remember in eighth grade, it was very weird because I was in, and it was times when I felt, uh, it depended, it was depending if in the group I felt confident or not. I was in an honors English class in eighth grade and also like a pretty remedial dumb, dumb science class. And in the science class, I had to give a three page presentation one day and spoke beautifully. I was like Obama up there. I was literally like flowing through it. And then the very next day, I had to give a presentation in the honors English class where I felt maybe intellectually, I hope these, these, these kids think I'm as smart as they do. And I, I didn't know if I belonged there. And I had to be, give a presentation as Willie Mays in a jersey, and I couldn't speak. And I literally stumbled through in the most embarrassing, awkward way. I'm having to make up statistics of how many home runs he hit to a number I could say and all of these things. And they're laughing at me, and it's my cards are getting, I'm sweating, and the cards are getting fumbled. And... and and it just was dependent on that. But it's funny that you say it's improvisational in a way because it very much was. And that's also why I think I'll never be able to give up doing crowd work and improvising as a huge part of my career is that I'm just, I've become really good at it. And I think, um, you know, they say that it takes the 10,000 hours of work to really become great at what you do and become one of the best at what you do. And I have a theory, I don't know if it's true, maybe some speech pathologist or neurologist out there can comment um, if they hear this podcast, but my theory is that, um, for so much of my life, I gave far more than that 10,000 hours in hitting roadblocks in my neural pathways where I couldn't say something. And then as I learned to get around it and get out of it and still be able to speak, I had to, with a split second notice, think of a completely different way with different words that I could say to get the same message across. And so I think I put in like 20,000 or more hours of building different neural connections and speeding up the way my brain would function so that now I think I'm, you know, one of the best at improv and crowd work because I just think of funny things to say much faster than most people do. And I'd like to at least attribute it to that. Maybe that was part of why it was, it was the training of the speech problem for so long. So one of the biggest things that can be also psychologically demoralizing to a kid in high school is friends and how cruel kids can be in school and also meeting girls who you engage and who like you and will go out with you and do things with you. Did you find that you had a hard time having any friends or having any girlfriends where you could have relationships with even at that young age? And when was the first time a girl actually cut through all the crap and didn't worry about what was wrong or what the speech problem was and just liked you for you? How old were you? Uh, 33. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> no, that's my biography. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I mean, it did take a while. I mean, I I was lucky enough that I never was at a place where I didn't have any friends, but I didn't have a huge group of close friends in most of elementary school. I didn't have like a lot of best friends. I did develop one best friend that I had, you know, in the later years of elementary school, who was this brilliant kid, Ayal, who ended up, you know, getting a 1600 on his SATs and going to Harvard. And, and he um, was also, I guess, weird in that way. And we kind of connected, but um, I definitely didn't have the ability to talk to girls or have anything in a romantic nature with girls for a very, very long time. I would get very nervous. The you know, first girl asked out, rejected me, and we ended up being friends, but she rejected me in like the sweetest but worst way I ever asked her out. And 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 uh, I said, I had mustered the energy to call her and was kind of stumbling through it. And I said, Iris, I wonder if you would go out, uh, if you wanted to go out with me this weekend. And she goes, I can't, I can't go out this weekend. I'm my, my cousin's coming to town. I go, okay, how about next weekend? She goes, my best friend and I are going to this thing. I'm like, okay, how about the weekend after that? And she goes, uh, then, then, uh, summer, summer school starts. <laughs> so she literally <laughs> just pushed me back to an enormous number of weekends where I kind of got the message. You also shouldn't ask somebody seven times in a row to go out with you. But, um, that's a good lesson for all of you listening out there. I always think to myself, the easiest way to, cut through the bullshit detector is just say tell me a day and a time when you can go out do you ask and i will confirm that do you ask girls out the same way you book your podcast and book <laughs> schedules give that, me three times when you're available <laughs> and i'll choose one that's why i'm not successful at women because <laughs> i ask them out like i'm booking the podcast and then you go on your first date and you say Listen, you think you look good. You don't look great. Oh, here's the list of things you need to go back. I'm going to meet you in one year. And if you don't put these things together, honestly, you're wasting your life. And then the girl is not into it. Um, Maybe you could give me some lessons on I, that. Then I could because I have figured out girls. I mean, sort of. I haven't exactly found the love of my life, so I don't say that I'm an expert. But when you say that you figured out women, tell our audience if you're writing a book on women. Yeah. Maybe three things that they wouldn't know that you could impart on them in the highlight chapter of your book to help them have better success with the ladies well humor i think is incredibly important and i think right, you, that's one that's one two is <laughs> i'm talking about myself oh, for I, you? Got, I got something sure. going for me well, i can okay. give you a bunch of tips off air but um just the tips but um <laughs> another big part of it is just you have to seem like real you have to seem genuine you just have to connect somebody's real look at them in the eye don't come up with some cheesy line don't try to pick them up just go up to somebody and and connect look them in the eye and say something genuine say something like oh i really like this bracelet or say to them this is a weird night isn't it just start a conversation don't you have to get right past because it's awkward for them too guys always think oh they're these perfectly stoic characters and we need to come up and bow to the altar it's not that way women deserve that because they're amazing and have incredible things to be to be to be you know uh respected in that way but they're also fragile people that want to meet somebody and are out at that bar because they're single and they want to meet somebody and so you go up there and get them pa get past that awkwardness up front by just saying something real something about the moment and the most important of all of them is just confidence and that's what i learned through that speech problem is women are attracted to confidence you can't get a you know i think evolutionarily we're designed for men to be the protectors and the and the alpha and then the situation and women want somebody who they know they can feel safe with and you can't you can't get get a girl if you're not exuding that so you have to come up and don't force it but go up, just have the confidence like no go up and say hey how are you 
So in this day and age of electronic dating. Oh, and the presumptive close is huge. One more huge tip for talking about this. Best way to get a girl's number in the world is the presumptive close. Very vulnerable and scary. And I used to mess up so many times saying like, could I get your number? You think I could get your number? Well, now that's awkward and you're saying it in an unconfident way. I pull my phone out and I say, what's your number? Let's hang out sometime. Just literally, or even, I don't say, what's your number? I, sorry, I say, I pull out my phone. I'm like, give me your number. Let's hang out sometime. So you don't even give them an option. It's like, give me your number. Oh, sure. Like, it's not awkward. It's just like a natural next step. I have them type out their number. And that way, when it has four digits, I know I'm in trouble. Nine one one exclamation point. Max, by the way, our producer's parents are here, and I'm so happy that they're here. It's so exciting to see people who are my age here who are actually alive and actually awake. Max's dad's wearing sunglasses. You don't know that he's awake. I thought he would slip into coma a long time ago. So just one more thing about this. So on the world of social electronic dating, Mm. where all the things that you mention are almost impossible to convey digitally when you're writing an answer back after yeah. the woman just says hi. Yeah. That's what they do. They just say hi. Yeah. They won't say it. You know, just hi. And they just leave it open for you to say something. I don't have good tips here. I'm horrible at, at online dating. I'd like app dating. I don't do well at it. I get a lot of matches, thankfully. And then I just, I almost never meet people off of it. I just, I'm not good. You do, you do exactly why you said you can't convey any of those things. And I come off a little, I think, neurotic and overthinking in the message. But I do know in texting girls, a big key, it's a, it's a, it's a stand-up bit of mine, is your, your text can't have more than one thought. You need to have simple, girls-like, very chill communication. And so it should be like, fun time or good hang. Girls love that. That makes them very excited. A text should not say, really fun time hanging with you. When can we hang out again? I think we should do it soon. Whoa, you just went three different places. She feels like you're erratic, you're needy. It's no good. That's the digital version of John Favreau and Swingers. That's exactly right. And then my other biggest tip is like, when all else fails, just send them a dick pic. That's a key move. Well, that would be another thing that would fail for me. <laughs> Jews and dick pics do not go together, <laughs> I'm afraid. It depends. We're on both ends of the spectrum. Well, I know you're blessed, <laughs> but I'm not blessed. But yeah, so I didn't really like get a girlfriend until my senior year of, of high school. She was a freshman. But she said, fuck it. I don't care that you're stuttering. I don't care that this stuff's happening. I don't care what people say. I don't care that people are making fun of you. I'm here for you. Well, but that was the weird thing. In high school, I didn't get made fun of very much. And in college, not at all. I still had the speech problem. But that was mostly in, high, in elementary school that happened. I got to a point where I, I, I wasn't like some, some sad case and totally unpopular. Like I was elected senior class vice president in high school despite my speech problem. I, I was on the football team. I was horrible. I never played. But I created the pep rallies and would host the pep rallies even though I had the speech problem. And it would come and go. So I was still like a really fun presence and had developed a lot of confidence by the time I was in high school. And the speech problem, I think, was not a very defining thing. In my head, it was the world. and It was the most enormous thing. But I was still a very fun, pretty well-liked guy, even though in my head I was incredibly awkward with girls. And, but, you know, you, you, you find a, a innocent freshman girl doesn't know any better and it makes it a lot easier. Tell us how you lost your virginity, the circumstances behind oh, it. Oh, Jesus. Do you ask these questions to the heads of HBO? <laughs> <laughs> this is the first time I've asked this question. I bet. Um, it's, a, it's a quite elaborate, long story that I'll try to boil down Our for audience you. has time. <laughs> oh, good. 
Oh, good. Well, uh, it's a very elaborate story. But the, the, the first time I technically lost my I'm sorry, Max's parents are going to have to leave the room. No, I'm <laughs> they, I think Max is here. They've, they're familiar with sex. <laughs> They've done it at least once. And um, she said once. She just pulled up one finger. Um, and uh, it was the time I really lost it, you know, two years later when I was like 22 or 23 years old. You lost your virginity time, twice. Twice. I did, yeah. I did because the first time was you, you, you technically have to count it, I guess, but it was not a success. It was this girl that I was in love with throughout all of college. And um, I, w- I was just always romantic comedy in the brain before it became a little bit more jaded. And I uh, just from met her day one of welcome week of freshman year and just that's the girl I wanted. And she was hadn't wanted nothing to do with me romantically, we became best friends. She did not want to be with me forever. And then eventually I wore her down and we started hooking up and like tried sort of dating, but she called me one day when it was about to be spring break and said, I want to, I want to do it with you. I want to lose my virginity with you. And I was like, Oh my God, that's great. And I proceeded to make the largest series of errors in a row to set my psyche up for complete failure. It's about to be spring break. So what do I do? Any confident college man's about to get laid. What does he do? You call your mom, you call your mom and you say, mom, Jill and I are going to do it. It's so exciting. Um, I need to get a hotel room. This is like pre the internet being like really like fluid and everybody being able to Google on their phones. We didn't have cell phones really. And so uh, mom's like, Benny, I'm so proud of you. I will look up <laughs> hotel rooms for you. I'll find hotel rooms. She calls me back. Here's a list of 12 hotel rooms on the beach in Santa Monica. You can meet her there. She books the room for me. I have to get confirmation numbers from my mom. I go down and then this girl... Jill drives all the way from her house in the valley to my parents' house in South Central Beverly Hills, parks at there. They know what's happening. Then we even said hi to my parents. Then we get in my car, drive to the beach. I have a boom box with me with 25 CDs for every possible mood, a cooler with snacks. I've got a, a thing. I have whipped cream. I have fruit. I ordered more <laughs> fruit from room service. We get there and put on music, and the vibe just could not be worse. Ended up writing a pilot about that. This was the the uh, Glebe show pilot that we partnered with Lord Michaels and sold to Foxman years Why ago. Why do you think the vibe couldn't be worse? Because it was just far too intense. Sex needs to be much more natural and unplanned and spontaneous and not literally like planning for a live Glebe show. Like I was like running cables down the side of the hotel <laughs> to make sure we had the right the right reception for my radio station. I mean, it was just so much tension and she was so nervous. I was so nervous and it was just the least sexy vibe possible. And she lies down the bed and she's like trembling and I'm nervous. I don't not particularly turned on by someone trembling. It's like, seems frightening. And, and I just could not really get an erection. It was just horrendous. And so then I excuse myself, go around the corner to the mirror and in front of the makeup table, but she can still hear me. It's not in a separate bathroom or anything. And I'm literally in front of the mirror being like, come on, buddy, you need this. <laughs> This is a big moment for you right now. You can do this. And that didn't help. And I'm sitting there like berating and beating myself quite literally and trying to make it happen. And then I go back and we try again. It doesn't work. We rent a porn on TV and it's some horrible. One. I don't like this one. So I have to cancel it and get another one. And, and she, and we end up giving up on the, so we tried, but like, so technically there was a bit of a, of a insertion of some sort, I suppose. And it failed. And then, uh, not in perhaps the coolest move of supporting the person that just had this experience with you and was about to share a beautiful thing and paid for an oceanfront hotel room. She goes, I want to go. 
do you mind driving me back to my car? So I have to drive from the beach at three in the morning back to her car in front of my parents' house. She drives home. I have to go in the house and get stuff. I go in the house. My parents wake up. Benny, how did it go? My dad's like, who is it? Did it go well? Did, you get, did, 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 did it happen? You do the deed? You do the deed? I'm like, uh, guys, I don't want to talk about it now. It's three in the morning. Go back. to It didn't go great. We'll talk about it later. Didn't go great. But I'm going to go back and enjoy the hotel. I paid for a beachfront hotel. I'm going to have fun. I'm like, Good for you, Benny. I'm so proud of you. I'm just, and I leave and I go back to the hotel and had a lovely night the rest of the time. Went in the hot tub the next morning. And I remember the next morning in the hot tub, uh, the jets being really weak and not being. And I, me- I remember the, the, the distinct irony of those jets being not as penetrating as I'd hoped that they would be. But that was my first time. And the next time you saw that woman, what happened? Well, then we went back to school for the last quarter of our senior year. I was 21. And there was this guy that she had a crush on. And she comes up to me at some Greek event, some awards banquet or something, literally not a month or a month and a half later, and says, Ben, um, I did it. I finally did it. I lost my virginity uh, to this guy. And that she that became her boyfriend. And they got married and they have three kids. So there's that. Talk about sliding doors and different paths your life can take. That guy should basically send your penis a fruit basket. He really should. (laughs) He really should. And whipped cream in a boombox. That's fantastic. Yeah, so that was pretty interesting. All right, so tell me when you noticed that the speech impediment was done. What happened where it finally finished? Was it when you started doing stand-up comedy or... There has to be a moment where it's over. Yeah, I've never had a problem, crazily enough, with my speech during stand-up comedy. Um, so the whole time, even the first time I did a set during college, it was I was fine. I always felt very comfortable doing stand-up for some reason, even though in my talk show I would have blocks. For some reason, that stand-up stage, I always felt very comfortable. Um, but throughout college, I still had those blocks, and it would still come and go. I mean, and as you said, my, my live Glebe shows grew to the point where I had 3,000 students in the crowd at UCSD, and literally I was the opening ceremony for Sun God Festival. The Marines bring me into the show on a tank. Carmen Electra's my guest. It's this huge event, two hours long, that I wrote and directed all the pre-tape bits and produced and created, and we're, we're, and I'm, I'm doing musical numbers, and I'm doing monologues, and there were some speech problems throughout that show, even though mostly I delivered pretty well but there were some blocks and some stammery ways I was delivering as I watched a tape a few years ago of it. Week later, I do an interview at the campus TV station about that show and can barely speak and literally can barely get thoughts out and had to ask the editor to like put B-roll coverage shots over me spe- hitting blocks and touching my eye because I was so embarrassed. And then one month later, I graduated college and was asked to speak at my college graduation in front of 7,000 people. And... So I was one of the most well-known people on campus at this point. So at that point, before you're about to deliver the speech, remember I asked you earlier how often it would happen to you and you said the majority of the time it would happen mm-hmm. to you. So at the point where you were walking up to the podium to give this speech, how often was it happening to you? It's so weird because it, it would happen, I guess, you know, it's still pretty 
often, but more sporadically. Like 50% of the time, 25% no, of the time? probably down to about 25% of the time, 20% of the time as, t- as college approached the end. Maybe even less, actually. Maybe 10% of the time towards the very end. So you're walking up to give a commencement speech in mm-hmm. front of 7,000 people. Mm-hmm. And you don't know if you're going to be able to talk. No, for some reason, I had this odd piece about it, and I knew for 100% I'd have no problem. How? My speech problem just melted away right before the end of college. I don't know what. I just had, I think after that live Glebeshoof, and I, though I had that quick setback a week later, it just melted away, and I knew that I would be fine. I just It was weird. I had this odd confidence. I was like, look, I created this show that nobody has created anything like it in college. It was successful. I had huge celebrities coming here. The final month of college, girls were asking me out on dates, and I just felt good. And and I knew I was about to go to L.A. and try to make a go at this business, and it just was. And I knew I was really good at, at this point already, at, like, making people laugh and delivering things. And and at this point, you know, on camera, it was pretty rare. I'd hit blocks that were significant. I would be a little stammery, but I wasn't, like, hitting blocks where I couldn't speak anymore. But there you always knew you could edit something. Right. A commencement speech yeah. in front of 7,000 people. There's no editing. I wrote a real good speech. And uh, I just went out there and it was very funny and also meaningful and had some really touching parts. I, I have a video of it. I can send it to you. And it was just flawless. I, I wasn't worried about it. And I never had a speech problem again in any significant way the rest of my life to this point, except one time. <laughs> and let's talk about that time, even though we're jumping forward. It was an incredible moment, and I hope that the audience could see it or look at it on YouTube or somewhere. Because the thing about Chelsea lately, and being a panelist on that show, again, it played into the same thing as when you were in high school. You never know when somebody's going to call on you. Right. You never know. And you can be prepared for what you think is going to happen. You can study all night long, just like on Chelsea, for what the thing is. But you never know what's going to happen. And you have the competition of two other people next to you who you have to be significantly better than to get another gig on the show. Mm -hmm. And also, you have to be equal to the task with Chelsea. It was one of the fastest wits ever and aggressive and real jumps on any problem. And the fact that you did over 100 of them is testament to the fact that you kept delivering. But tell our audience, jumping forward, the last time something happened to you like that. So you stopped after that commencement speech, and then here we are more than 10 years later. Mm-hmm. What happens? Um, so I'm on an episode of Chelsea that they'd already done the show at this point probably you know, 30 or 40 times. We're in season three or so of the show and never had an issue on camera. And I was on with Bobby Lee and Joe Coy, and two longtime friends of mine. I mean, Bobby Lee was the third guest ever on my college talk show in the AV room. I did the smaller versions of it in 1996. And, but, you know, two great Asian comedians, and I mention Asian for a particular reason, um, because on that show, as you know, there was just no hold bars. I mean, nothing was safe. You had a speech problem, she'd hit you for it. I have a little bit of a lisp still to this day, she would hit me for it. And even though I really had a lisp until Chelsea pointed it out on the air. Um, and, uh, no race was safe, no gender was safe, no person was safe. And it was a show you'd make, you could just make any joke. It was like a roast constantly. I mean, she'd make racial jokes. I'd make racial jokes. Everybody would. And so I'm on with these two Asian comedian friends of mine, Joe Coy and Bobby Lee. They're sitting on each side of me. And I knew I was going to be on with them in advance. And we're doing some story about some guy in China, some company in China that hires American actors to, to pretend that 
they run Chinese companies, whatever. And I'm trying to deliver a joke I've planned and I just hit a block and I haven't hit a block in at this point, you know, six, seven years. And when you say you hit a block, you're trying to talk and nothing's coming out. Yeah, literally, I keep trying to start the sentence. And so I, literally I was like, yeah, but the guy, yeah, but the, uh, the guy said, the, the point is the guy, and I literally, and everybody's laughing. Chelsea's like, what's happening? You need a glass of water? What's going on? I'm like, no, no, no. It's just, and I keep trying to start. She's like, it's okay, man. It's okay. And then Joe Coy goes, it's his old speech problem coming back. And the audience is going nuts and laughing and screaming and, Bobby Lee goes, relax, Ben, it's just TV. And they're both like piling on and Chelsea's piling on and there's this uproarious and I literally can't speak. And it was mortifying. And I was like, flashes are going through my head like, oh my God, what if this is like my awakenings moment at the end when the movie, when they go back into the catatonic state and I lose my ability to speak again and I can't anymore talk and I lose my career and maybe I have to go just being a writer the rest of the time. And all these thoughts are running through my head, and I'm like, oh, no. But those thoughts come very quickly while you're also trying to recover and figure out a way out of this. And Chelsea's trying to move on, and I just all of a sudden get a thought, and I insist on finishing. And I'm like, no, 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 no. And she's like, okay, uh, what? And I go, and finally I just take a breath, and it relaxes, and I go, at least it's not as bad as these two guys who are very excited to be here on Charisee Ratery. <laughs> and it crushes the room. Chelsea laughs hysterically. Bobby goes, you bastard, you bastard. And I just crush the room. It, it's my rope-a-dope episode because I came from being against the ropes and just knockout punch. And I had this already in my pockets planned, not for this moment, but for any moment in the round table. I pull out from my pockets two fortune cookies and I go, guys, in case you're hungry. And I slide the two of them fortune cookies and it just crushes the room. And it was my favorite moment. So... I knew then again I'd always be able to find a way out of a block because the worst moment became the best. So when I at the end of the eight of the seven year run of Chelsea lately, she had some of her most recurring people come up with her at the end of the, of different episodes towards the last few episodes and share their favorite moment. And I played that clip again of that moment, so that was pretty fun. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So we already talked about the National Lampoon show a little bit. I mentioned that, and you went through that, and you did that, and well, but let me say one thing about that about that National Lampoon show. And it's a crazy thing that also, you know, I know your podcast, really the point, a lot, large part of the point of it is to talk about this business and how to succeed in following things that you want. It's a long slog. Like, like whenever I see people that I haven't seen since high school or haven't seen in a long time, they're like, man, you're living the dream. Not to deflate them, but to give them a reality check, I say to them, yeah, I'm definitely doing what my dream was. But just so you know, it's not easy. It's not a dream job every day. It's a dream what I get to do. But it's very hard work. It's, it's maybe harder work than what your job is. It's definitely a job you can't turn off. Most jobs you get to check in and check out at the end of each day and you have a vacation in your mind. I never stop thinking about comedy. I never stop working. never stop writing. Always on my phone creating something for Snapchat or for Twitter or writing jokes or trying to do bits or emailing about possible future things or promoting next projects or whatever it is. And when I sold this talk show at National Lampoon, it was at the, I was 23 to 25 doing these three seasons of Lampoon. It was a talk show that then became a sitcom with hidden camera bits and sketches and man on the street pieces. I wrote the whole thing with Scott Richardson. I directed the whole run of the show myself. I performed in every frame of it. And it was some of the best, most out-of-the-box, creative, fun stuff I've ever done in my career. And no one saw it. We did 20 episodes over the course of two years, three seasons. And... It wasn't on national television for real. It was airing to colleges. So college students saw it, some of them. But it's just the reason I say it is because 
you have to be even okay with that. Like some of the most prolific stuff I ever did, the prolific, most prolific time came and went. I have all the footage. Maybe one day when I'm at, you know, when I'm, when people hopefully see me as one of their favorites and, and, uh, and they were curious about my back log, I'll release it as a gunthy, as a gunthy ranker flash drive set or whatever the future holds. But, um, no one saw these seasons and you have to get past that. You have to still work harder the next time and work as hard and, and keep creating your next thing. And just, so it, ha it can't be about rewards. It can't be about accolades or an audience receiving or not. It truly has to be about your undeniable passion for what you do. You're undeniable. You can't, you have to have the need to do, you have to have the, the ability to do nothing else. It has to be all you want. And if it is, you'll be able to sustain past all the failures and past all the times that people don't see what you do and don't give a shit or didn't receive it the way you did or didn't get the jokes or didn't pay attention enough because your stuff's more cerebral than what they're used to or what they're wanting or whatever it is. You have to just believe in it and love it so much that just doing the work is all that really matters. Awesome. Let's do a extended version of six degrees of separation. I'm sure. going to mention a name of somebody and I need you to just tell me what comes to mind. Could be one word, could be a sentence, could be a story. Sure. Lauren Michaels. Brilliant producer, huge to comedy, crazy honored to have my name in even the tiniest of ways associated with him. Never met him. He produced my show from afar. It was more his company doing it. SNL was a huge goal of mine. He created just the comedy Valhalla. Johnny Carson. The great, the greatest ever, the most natural, amazing host who I want to be, who has influenced, I think, my personality beyond just my on-camera personality. The greatest, just, oh, just class personified. Kristen Wiig. <laughs> Genius, amazing. Um, I got to start with her, really. Um, we were in the same improv troupe, the Empty Stage Theater in L.A. I joined an improv troupe when I graduated college called the, LA, called the Empty Stage on Overland here on the west side, and... Felicia Day was in the troupe, and Kristen Wiig was in the troupe. She was in the group above us, so we didn't do shows together. But we would rehearse together and um, sometimes, and I just watched her on stage in awe and knew she was brilliant. I remember one day watching her and just seeing her be so fucking hilarious, like just in a zone and thought she was genius. And so I, that day, after I didn't know her well. We didn't, like, hang out. We weren't friends, really, but I asked for her number because I wanted to cast her in something. I, I said to her, I think you're incredible. I would love to put you in something. I make content sometimes. Did you hand her your phone? I did. I said, yo, yo, yo girl, give me your number. Let's hang out sometime. Um, got her number. She wrote it in like purple crayon or something we had backstage. And I still have it somewhere. I don't know where it is. But And a year goes by. She left the troupe shortly thereafter. I left the troupe or one of us left. And I hadn't produced anything in that year. Didn't have a sketch to put her in, nothing. And I thought she was so brilliant. I just, whatever reason, wanted to call her and let her know. And I called her one day and said, Kristen, it's Ben from the Empty Stage. And I remember she's like, oh, yeah, how are you? And I'm like, I'm great. I just want to let you know. Um, and, she, and she sounded a little down, maybe. She sounded a little bit, maybe I caught her on, on a depressed day. In this business, you have moments that you don't, you know, it's up and down. And, and she seemed like in, the, in not the most maybe confident place. And I said to her, I just want to let you know, I don't have, I'm sorry, I don't have anything still to put you in but I want you to know I think you're so brilliant and so talented 
and I'm pretty good at seeing when people are, are good. And I just think you're incredible. You're going to have a huge career. I just feel it. And she seemed so touched by it. I think that was how I knew that she was maybe in like a place where she needed to hear that. And she said, oh my God, thank you so much for that, Ben. Like, that means the world to me. Thank you for saying that. And we hung up. And shortly thereafter, she got Saturday Night Live and became Kristen Wiig. Nice. Kevin Smith. Oh, man. Icon. Film legend. Voice of our generation. One of them. Um, and a guy that has been a big part of my career. Um, you know, you get those lucky random moments that if you put the work in. I love the quote, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. And it's not just random because if luck comes and you're not ready, you, you're, you're going to drop that, that moment. But I got a call one morning that Kevin Smith is shooting this afternoon, his TV pilot, a Chelsea Lately type show. And the, one of the co-hosts or panelists for the whole show dropped out. Can you come do it? I never met Kevin Smith, huge fan. And I say, of course, yes. And I go to the studio and I'm taping suddenly a talk show, like four segments with myself, Arden Marine, Kevin Smith, and Seth Rogen. And it goes amazingly. We have this amazing time. And Kevin Smith and I both enjoyers of marijuana. Afterwards, uh, he says, you want to smoke a joint? And I said, sure. And we're missing his rap party for his, for his taping because he and I are talking. And he asked me for my life story. And I tell him essentially what I'm telling you today. And he's just, I guess, pretty into the story. And he says to me, um, so you're a producer like me. You're a creator. What are you doing just being on panels on shows like this and on Chelsea? You got to create again, man. And I was already thinking that, but a kick in the ass from Kevin Smith really puts you there. And he invites me on his podcast. Halfway through the podcast, he asked me to guest host in his house. At the end of the podcast, he says, do you want to have your own podcast on my network? I said, yeah, it would be incredible. I have several ideas, including one called Last Week on Earth. It's a harder one to do. But he's like, Last Week on Earth? I'm like, why? He's called that. I'm like, because it covered all the things that happened during the last week on Earth. And he goes, that is a genius title. That's amazing. Uh, that's your podcast. You're doing that one for sure. And he just gave me these green lights. And all of a sudden, I have a podcast on Kevin's network. He helps me launch it at number nine in iTunes. It's so high. And then I give, you know, he and Jay Muse cast me as one of the leads in this animated movie. I get an email one morning from Kevin Smith out of the blue a year later saying, Ben, I just uh, finished writing the script for Clerks 3, and I wrote a part for you. And to have somebody like that write a part for me was, I mean, it was an emotional moment. I was like, that was incredible. And it just had to be made, and I pray it gets paid soon. It's been pushed back a couple of times, but I'm sure it will happen. Um, it was incredible. And there's a bit of... of of uh, insight, I think, into how to navigate this business there too. And it's something I've been thinking a lot about lately is you have to, without being a pushy asshole, you have to ask for things. You have to put thoughts in people's heads. Like we've said many times tonight that people don't always see very broadly. They only see what you present to them. If you don't put an idea in their head, they're not going to see you as an actor if you're not, if they see you as a podcast, they're not going to see you as a comedian if they see you as a producer. And so I was, and I first spent most of my career never asking for a damn thing. I just wanted everything to come to me. I wanted people to notice me on their own. They want to be pushy. And a lot of years went by of me probably not advancing much as I could by just not being cutthroat at all. Shouldn't be cutthroat in a bad way, but be aggressive. State your, yourself, make your presence known. And I didn't do it, but I was starting to want to, to work on that a little bit more. 
And there were two instances when I did it and it immediately paid off or so soon off after it paid off. I was doing a Q&A for this Jay and Silent Bob super groovy cartoon movie with Kevin Smith and Neil Gaiman, of all people who's in the movie. And Neil Gaiman says, um, i not an actor and I didn't expect to ever do something like this, but Kevin asked me to do a part and I said, sure, of course. And I took the mic and I said, opposite for me, I'm an actor. I don't get cast in shit. It's very hard to get roles. And uh, so Kevin asked me to do it. Anybody asked me to do a part and I said, yes, I'll do it. And I walk outside and Kevin uh, says, says to me, or I say, thanks so much for putting me in this, man. You know, I've been, or, or and he says to me in the alley, we're behind the thing smoking some pot. And he, he and Jay Muse say to me in the alleyway, he goes, um, Ben, honestly, Kevin says, I've been doing this 20 years and your performance in this cartoon is one of my favorite performances I've ever seen in my career. And he's worked with everyone. I mean, Ben Affleck, George Carlin and my heroes. And, and that was so impactful to me. And right at that moment, I just confidently said, you know, I'm also available for live action acting work. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, I'm starting to realize that. Like I mostly saw you as a podcaster and a comedian, but I'm realizing you're an actor. And then he sends me that email saying he wrote a part for me. I don't know that he would have, if I didn't say that similar thing happened one night. I'm hanging out with Chelsea. We're all partying and we're definitely not sober. And she's talking about her upcoming tour and, and people she can have open for her. And I said to her, you know, you should have open for you. She goes, who? I go, me. And then she asked me to open for her a couple months later. I don't know if either would have happened if I didn't say it, put the thought in their head for what that's worth. With Chelsea having you open up for her, I think, and I'm speculating, so Chelsea is not here and she might say, Barry, you're wrong, but I'm going with the flow here. When you invite a guy on the road with you and you're vulnerable, we normally tour with men. Mm -hmm. So we see men out on tour and we see their most vulnerable sides, but we see it. We're guys. We see a guy. But when you're a woman on tour, when you're with a guy on tour and he's headlining, he might, he might come into his hotel room. He's walking around in his underwear. Mm -hmm. We're used to that. If you're Chelsea Handler, I would imagine you want to feel comfortable in your huge unbelievably massive hotel suite or backstage in your underwear and you want to be around guys who you feel safe with who you know aren't going to be the weird uncle kind of guy <laughs> the guy who's okay seeing you in your most vulnerable positions whether you're inebriated or you're in your underwear or you're changing and they're not going to be like, wow, that's a nice mole you have there or whatever. Oh, <laughs> I didn't know you were shaved into a Jewish star. That's really interesting. <laughs> Somebody who they can feel really comfortable with and hang out with like that. And that's a big testament when you get that call and be able to open up for her like that. Oh, big time. But I mean, Chelsea Handler is, I mean, I can't say enough about this person. She is an incredible person. She really is a one of a kind it wasn't even, I don't even think that was an issue. We'd already, we already were pretty good friends. We already would hang out. I would, you know, I, we would do sleepovers at her house, you know, and, and, and we already had a very intimate, close friendship and, um, and we're very comfortable around each other. And, and, uh, I just think she is like one of the coolest, most unique humans I've ever known because like we said earlier, she's so driven and so funny. And I think she's the greatest and fastest wit of any talk show host, I think she and David Letterman were the two quickest ever and most sardonic and biting and 
and sharp, yet she was also so fun. She's like just a fun hang. She's just a really cool girl, loves having friends around her, loves partying, loves indulging in life, loves enjoying. And like, yeah, she and I have seen each other in very vulnerable moments because, you know, when you party with somebody and you're not sober around somebody and you, you know, spend a weekend, you know, either, you know, hanging out and then going to Pilates and then swimming and then talking and then, you know, falling asleep watching Johnny Carson documentary on PBS on her iPad. I mean, she and I became very close friends. So um, I don't think that was even an issue about her trusting me on the road. Um, we just very comfortable around each other. And I think part of that is is somebody that's willing to, you know, treat or able to treat somebody at that level, just like a normal human being. I find people at that level don't want to be treated like there's some special thing. They want to be treated like a normal person. So she and I would play ping pong. I'd bring my net on the road and we would talk shit to each other. And she would call me a weak Jew and I'd call her a Nazi bitch and we would have a great time. And it was just that loose. And so I wasn't too much of an issue. I did try to make out with her once. So it's maybe I, I, I bearded in a creepy uncle one time, but, um, and even that wasn't, wasn't in a creepy way because we were just super fucked up and we were on edibles and we were playing some game in her hotel room in Vegas and uh, and so we were like on one piece of paper together in the corner of the room and I'm just messed up and I never really had a crush on Chelsea but in the back of your head I'm always curious you know I don't think making out is a big deal and I'm like it'll be fun to make out there sometime and see if there's a vibe there and so I drunkenly and stonedly said we should make out and she says uh, no and I go come on it'll be fun and she goes I don't think so. I'm like, well, come on, you're this sexually open, liberated girl. Why not? And she goes, because it won't be fun for me because I don't want to make out with you. And I'm like, oh, all right, fine. And I'm like, can you do me a favor? Can you uh, not tell anybody that I asked you this? And she goes, that's not going to happen, Ben. <laughs> and I go, okay, uh, can you do me one big favor? Can you please not at least talk about it on the show? And she goes, that's fine. I won't talk about it on the show. And I'm like, okay. So anyway, if you hang on there 10 minutes, I'm like, I'm going to I'm gonna go to bed. I'm going to go to my room. This is in Las Vegas. I'm going to go to my room. And she goes, you're not going to spend the night? And so I'm like, all right, fine. I'll spend the night. And I'm like, I don't have a toothbrush. She's like, use my toothbrush. And I use her toothbrush. And we go to bed. And, and she's in her underwear and gets in bed. And we have a totally chill night. She wants to stay up still watching late TV. She like, loves to be up and loves company and loves to doesn't like to be alone, I guess, in her bed often or didn't back then. And so she's like, let's stay up and watch the rest of this Rumsfeld documentary you want to watch. Let's watch. We can watch the thing you want to watch. I'm like, I'm going to sleep. Enough. You want to wake me up in the middle of the night with a massage? Go ahead. Otherwise, I'm rolling over and going to sleep. And it was never even awkward when that happened. It was still totally chill, like friends. And when you party with somebody, there's, you know. Do you ever wake up and loose. you're spooning each other? No. We no. We haven't slept in bed together that many times. But the only reason I tell this story on the air about Chelsea is because I then, we fly back in her jet in a private jet to LA and I tune in Chelsea lately the next day on Monday, I wasn't on the show and her monologue is the exact story of me trying to kiss her, her saying, no, she doesn't want to me saying, come on, it'll be fun. Her saying, I don't want to fucking make out with you. Me saying, please don't tell anybody her saying that's not going to happen. And then me saying, at least don't talk about it on your show. And that was the end of the monologue. Oh my God. Pretty amazing. Very unique. Without you there. Created without me there idiot test on gsm yes oh man i mean the greatest the greatest match for my comedy the most fortunate circumstance that that 
I got it. You know, it's just weird in this business. You never really know where your fans are going to come from, where your supporters are going to come, where breaks might pop out of. And um, I guess I did a showcase many years ago for GSN, a live stand-up showcase that they got to know me um, because they're at, they actually just asked me in, in a week, I'm headlining that same showcase now that they wanted me to mention during my set that everybody performing in the showcase, it could lead to a thing like this because that's where they met me. And they started having me do things on their air over the years. And then I did an episode of Mind of a Man, this short-lived talk show that D. Ray Davis, a short-lived game show that D. Ray Davis hosted. And Barry Nugent, um, one of the execs at GSN, says to me before the taping, you know, Ben, we really love you here at GSN and we're looking to find a show for you. And I thought it was just BS Hollywood talk. It was nice to hear a compliment, but I was like, I'm not going to get a show. They're going to have me a show. Kind of like a Harrison Ford, Adam Sandler moment. It kind of was, yes. Yeah, I had a manager years earlier when I was in college still, a Hollywood manager that signed me and hadn't done anything for me. And I had a meeting in his office and he, to show that he was doing something. He gets on a phone and he calls some producer and he goes, I got a client here. He's a young kid. He's kind of like a cross between Adam Sandler and Harrison Ford. And I thought that was very sweet and such bullshit. No one has ever or will ever compare me to Harrison Ford again. Nothing about me is Harrison Ford. Like, I'm, I'm the anti-Ford. Um, so I thought it was like that. You know, it's just another, like, great, nice thing to say that is not going to pan out. And then about two months later, um, they reached out to you and, and me and said, um, we want Ben to host this conference room run-through of this game show called Idiot Test. I still didn't think anything of it because you get asked to do like favors for networks all the time. And I was like, Oh cool. I'll do another favor. It won't lead to anything. And it'll be a day of my life that I spend, you know, doing cool thing and making connections, but you don't, you, you to like, like I said, because you have to, to sustain and succeed in this business, you have to care about the work. You end up not putting a lot of eggs in the baskets of different opportunities that come because you realize 99.99% of them lead to nothing. And it's just continuing work and more chances to work. So I said I would do it. And then I forgot the date. It didn't get like officially like solidified in my calendar somehow. And I booked a rare vacation to New York. And I never take vacations, but I was dating girl in New York at the time. And I took a six-day vacation during the Christmas holiday time to, uh, to go to New York. And so the trip was coming up. And all of a sudden I remembered, oh, shit this GSN conference room run through. I said, yes, do I have to call and say, I can't do it. So I called and canceled it. And so I'm so sorry. I'm going to New York. I can't do it. Called the producers of the show that they'd put me in touch with. And um, they're like, okay, we'll ask somebody else. And then I'm at Hanukkah dinner at my house. And Eliza Schlesinger, one of my closest friends in comedy and life was there with my family. And all of a sudden it popped back in my head. And I was like, guys, I already passed on this thing, but um, I'm just curious do you think I should, fl I should fly back to host this conference from run through that, that I said no to of this, of this little game show called idiot test. Um, and my mom's like, don't fly back. You always fly back. It leads to nothing. You waste your time. You get so excited. It's no enjoy a vacation for once. And my dad goes, I'd fly back. And Eliza goes, I would definitely fly back if it was me. And Eliza, I just have so much respect for, for her as a person and a comedian and her work ethic's incredible. And so another person who I'm drawn to that is very, very serious about her work and really gets it done and and just very savvy when it comes to those things. The second she said that, I was like, fuck. I mean, at the time, I was stunned that you were yeah. saying no. 
and you were adamant about it, and I was like, my God, this is not the Ben I know. I know. I finally decided I'm just going to do the opposite and enjoy life and take a break, and you were like, this is a great opportunity. You should do it. And I'm like, Barry, it's just I do this all the time. It's one <laughs> six-day vacation. What's it going to lead to, honestly? And you're like, okay, I'm not gonna force you to. I'm not gonna force you to do it. I've never had you so adamant. It was like crazy <laughs> to not do something. To I'm usually adamant to do everything. You're telling me yeah. not to do certain things that are a waste. But this one, you, re you recognize as an opportunity, and I and I and I wasn't gonna do it. And once Liza said that, I was like, oh shit, maybe I had a mistake. So I immediately got got up from our family dinner, and I called the producers, and I said, is it too late? can I still do it? I want to actually fly, I'll fly back in the middle of my vacation for the, for the day and I'll do it. And he said, Oh, we already asked another comedian to do it. I'm so sorry. And then there's noise in the background. He goes, wait, actually, I don't know if he said yes yet. So let me call. And if he hasn't actually said yes yet, we wanted you. So we'll let you do it. Do you ever find out who that person I was? I did not. I want to know so badly. I don't actually want to know because that would be mean. Um, let, let the Zen of that take over. And he calls me back five minutes later. He's like, and suddenly it was important to me. I'm like, I hope I get it. I hope I get it. And he calls back. He's like, the guy didn't say yes. It's yours. So I book a flight back from New York for literally just 12 hours. So I didn't want to miss much of this vacation. I flew back for 12 hours, took a red eye back from New York, red eye back there. It was round trip, 24 hours, and literally only 12 hours on ground in L.A. And what you don't realize a lot of times as an artist, which you should, is that everything that you go in a room for where there's executives counts. Right. And what Ben didn't understand as much, and they tried to downplay, was that this was actually a test to see if he would be right to be a host for this show. Right. But it was never couched that way. I thought they were just kind of using me as like a placeholder. I didn't realize this was the show that they really were thinking about putting on their air. But you treated it like it was a test. And I think one of the things right. that should be noted about game shows, because everything in comedy, everything in our business is a different muscle. If you're roasting somebody, it's different than doing stand-up. If you're doing stand-up, it's different than telling a story at Largo. Mm -hmm. And hosting a game show and doing things in a test, what you don't really realize all the time, you think, oh, I'm going to go in there, I should be really funny. They're not worried about you being funny. They want to know that you can execute the game in the time frames that they need to execute it. And then if you want to throw in a funny line here and there, great. But the priority is, can he drive the game forward in the proper way that mm -hmm. we envision it? Mm -hmm. And you did. Yeah, so I went into this room again on almost no sleep. I don't sleep well on red eyes. I didn't, I had a shitty, I think I, except I the last minute, I had a middle seat, so you can't fall asleep possibly. And I get there and I literally am unshaven and I have a dress shirt over my shoulder that I have to go in the bathroom at GSN and change into. I'm already a few minutes late. And I go out there and... I was prepared, but I was working off cards, but I was very prepared and definitely drove the game. But I'll disagree on one thing. I drove the game really well and I got us through it in the time needed, but I fucking rocked it comedically. I threw in jokes everywhere. And I agree with you there, but you will attest to the fact that if you were just funny oh, and yeah. didn't drive no, the game forward, you wouldn't get it. The game but is... if you drove the game yes. forward and weren't as funny, you still would have gotten it. Oh, I don't know. Maybe I still would have gotten it, but there would have been a lot of other, they would have maybe considered other contenders more. They would have looked at places, but I, you, 
you have to really stand out. You have to really find a way. So yes, you need to do the, the basic of the job and be able to, to, to lead a show and be able to command a show and command one where there's a lot of elements and there's brain puzzles and games and there's four contestants, two teams and bouncing back and forth and explaining the puzzle. There's, you're right. There's a lot of mechanics that you really have to execute. But what I did in that room also on top of that was I just... I mean, I, if I can speak not humbly about it, I crushed that room. I just, it was explosive laughter while also well executing this game. And it was just a magical vibe in there, I felt, for that hour. And I walked out and didn't hear anything. And flew back to New York, finished my vacation, and assumed it was just another great room. I've killed audition rooms many times in my career that lead to nothing. And a couple, few months passed. I ran into some GSN execs at some other event, and they're like, yeah, we're still, we're, we're trying to see if maybe the show might go. Um, we liked you so much. Um, you might throw a celebrity in there, though, if we pick it up, you know, like a bigger celebrity, but um, we thought you were amazing, and I still thought it's BS talk. And all of a sudden, I get a call that GSN picked it up for 40 episodes from the conference room. No pilot. No in initial five-episode run. And how many game shows are there, Ben, that you know of? on television in the past 25 years where there was a person that was completely unknown to the national audience. Well, not completely. Seven years Chelsea lately. All right. But I definitely wasn't Steve Harvey at the time. That's right. And uh, yeah, they got it. And it was, it was just a real great confluence of circumstances. And again, that improv really coming through for me. But, Going um, way back to when you were a kid. Yeah, and the skills of studying Johnny Carson. And I think the way that he would host, I used a lot of what I learned watching him and watching Letterman and that balance of being, you know, funny and biting, but also not being an asshole and making sure people feel comfortable. It's a lot of, it's a real delicate balance you have to kind of, I guess, pull off. But, they, you know, Mark Cronin came on board to produce a show after that and Mark told me... Mark Cronin, the historic producer who has done so many things and so many great Singled shows. out and created all the surreal lives and all of the... Started with Howard Stern. Started with Howard Stern. He's been a guest on your podcast. It was a great episode. I really liked it. And uh, said to me he's never heard of that in his whole career, that they picked up 40 episodes from a conference room run-through. And so I guess it went that well that they knew that I could pull off and carry the whole series and then now we you know finished taping our third season it's airing now every tuesday at 10 and ten thirty nine central and two episodes a week and i'm executive producer now and and uh help create the brain puzzles and just recently did a political idiot test yeah too. did a spin-off of the show it's the first time i got to create a format and be executive producer because i'm co-ep on idiot test but executive producer and head writer and run the writer's room and hire the writers with the network and and created a spinoff that was totally different format, different set, different, different vibe, different format completely with two political pundits and using my love of politics mixed with my game shows like The Daily Show meets my game show. And we created this format to use games and different kind of puzzles as a way into brief little political conversations, try and talk about the, ins the issues that are in this insane, insane election, things of gender rights and human rights and and border walls and all this insane thing so it was really it's been the most amazing run and then getting getting to host host upfronts in new york for the network and getting to be the face of a network and now i mean granted like obviously i've been working for a long time so i i don't like the idea to think that i was unknown before i got it but certainly i, I am aware when i went to upfronts this year and they have wrapped around columns in new york in this big 
Paley Media Center building and we go in with with my picture on it and then you go in the room and there's four faces that are flanking this enormous huge stage that are presenting to the media buyers and and the and the ad buyers and it's Rebecca Romaine and RuPaul and Donald Faison from Scrubs fame and Clueless and me up on the wall 50 feet tall was pretty crazy because I definitely am aware that you know leading up until the show I was not at the stature or celebrity status of any of those guys. Dave Chappelle. Amazing. Mad genius. I've been fortunate to do shows with him sporadically throughout my career. Just a real interesting, amazing guy. And when he was, when he left the, the Chappelle show, disappeared, went to Africa, and he was missing and no one knew where he was for a while. He His first appearance back on any stand-up stage was on Comedy Juice. And I remember the crazy moment. I was in a hotel room in like Bakersfield or Oakland or someplace in Northern California. And I'm watching headline news and it says, Dave Chappelle reemerges on the stand-up stage after four days being in hiding on the Comedy Juice show at the Hollywood Improv. And I was so bummed. I'm like, what? One of the few that I'm missing. I missed this historic moment. And I told it to my manager at the time, Felicia, and she said to me, Ben, you don't want to be the be upset that you're missing somebody else making news. You want you're on the road making your own news, building your own career. And I was like, Oh yeah, good point. So that was pretty cool. And gotten to hang with Dave occasionally over the years. And a crazy moment too from someone I respect so much. I was talking to him one time backstage at the Laugh Factory and I mentioned something I was doing on CNN and he goes, oh shit, because we don't know each other well. He doesn't, I don't even know if he knows my name, but we've hung a, a handful of times over the years and he says to me, CNN, oh shit, I love your work on there, man. You're so funny and smart on there. And to hear a compliment like that from Dave Chappelle was pretty incredible. It's little moments like that that really make you feel like, wow, like not only are these guys that you get to dance with, you get to be in the arena with, but you get to a point where you're like good enough or established enough that like, they even have respect for you, maybe, is a pretty crazy thing. Jessica Beale. Oh, amazing human, amazing person. I became friends with her many years ago. I haven't been in contact with her in a long time, really. But uh, I was a motivational speaker for high school students when I graduated college as my first gig, trying to make money and trying to avoid having to get a real job so I could be free to create. And I was doing speeches at high schools in Texas, in, in Austin, Texas. And my friend from acting class, Jonathan Tucker, great actor, um, was shooting Texas Chainsaw Massacre in Austin and surrounding fields, co-starring Jessica Biel. And we hung out in, well, first we hung out in Santa Monica, took me to her house and we hung out and then we started hanging out in Austin. And, uh, She's just the coolest girl in the world. She was so down to earth and funny and fun and like, like shared her insecurities. She was just a cool, cool person. We just hit it off and had a great time hanging for like a week in Austin. And I then asked her to, um, if she'd be the, the first guest on my National Lampoon talk show. That was at this time, season one was in some rinky dink photo studio. We rented from a guy who lived there. 
in downtown in some loft. It was like the lowest budget at a million degrees in there. Her managers and agents and publicists all unanimously agreed she should not do my little college talk show. And she did it. And she said, I don't care what they say. You're awesome. I want to do your show. And came down and was my first guest for an hour on my show. And I'll be forever grateful for that. And it was so cool. And we fell out of touch after that for many years. And then a few years ago, Dane brought me, this is like, you know, at this point, like 16 years ago. And then a few years ago, Dane brought me to some event for Pantera Sarah, this brain book for this uh, beauty book for brain cancer of these beautiful pictures. And Jessica Beale and Justin Timberlake were in the book and we're at the event and Justin Timberlake's there with his wife, Jessica Beale. And I hadn't seen her in, you know, 14 years. And she remembered me completely and gave me the warmest hug. And we're sitting there talking for 15 minutes, Dane Cook, Jessica Beale, Justin Timberlake and me. And it was just the funniest moment. At one point, even Timberlake sees me and Jessica hugging and reconnecting. And he goes, so how do you know each other again? What's going on here? <laughs> like almost like a little protective over me. I'm like, over me? You're Justin Timberlake. Um, but he was so cool and really fun. And uh, Jay Beale just couldn't have been nicer. And like, I just, at this point, she'd taken off to like the ultimate A-list stratosphere of, this, of, of, of the planet, really. And she was still so down to earth. But like, at this point, I didn't want to like impose. I didn't want to. And so at one point, she uh, came over to me. I'm sitting down at the table with Dane and Rachel Hunter again, sitting next to me. And I was hitting on Rachel Hunter because sometimes I like older girls. And uh, Dane's hitting on Rachel Hunter's younger daughter because he likes younger girls. And and um, and we're talking. And Jay Beale comes over and like visits me. And so she comes, taps me on the shoulder. I look up and it's Jessica Beale. And we're talking for a minute. But I didn't even want to like stand up. I should have like stood up and talked and hung out. But I didn't want to like impose on her time too much or whatever. So I just talked for a minute and then turned back and faced the table again. And she's still standing behind me and awkwardly just like massages my shoulders. And then, okay, I'll be over there all night with Jay, with uh, uh, Justin, if you want to say hi. And awkwardly, I made her feel uncomfortable and like insecure and walked away because I didn't want to impose. I thought it was the funniest moment that like this huge star, like by me not wanting to impose made her. So again, that point about girls and then guys and anybody, it's like everybody's just a person. Like that's what you really learn when you end up playing with giants is that everybody is the same. We really, no matter how successful you are, as Biggie said, said it best, more money, more problems. You don't become this rarefied air, different person. You really maybe have more problems. You have more insecurities and you're just a normal person. So treat people normally and everything is cool. Last one, Zach Galifianakis. <laughs> awesome comedian, brilliant guy, such a weird guy. Um, and I haven't seen him in many years since he achieved huge stardom with all the hangover movies and everything. But we used to gig together at the improv a lot and I'd book him on comedy juice and we knew each other. And I remember one day I'm at the improv celebrating because Scott and I had just sold the Glebe show to Fox. Scott Richardson, my former writing partner, I created comedy juice with and we started living in a, my parents' garage together, splitting $75 a week, promoting at the Laugh Factory, what became Comedy Juice and what launched both of our careers. Um, and we finally, after years of hard work, sold this show to Fox, took our Lampoon show that nobody saw, and hopefully we're finally going to be able to make it for Fox, which of course never picked it up after we wrote the pilot, but their comedy department got fired and the slate got cleaned at another time that like your a year of work got cleared away and it was just for the love of writing it because no one fucking saw it that's for sure and but when we sold it that night we were celebrating and we go to the improv which is our home and the place that has always been my home club and the place i feel most welcome and comfortable in this comedy business and 
I walk in there and we're celebrating and getting champ like champagne or something. And I see Zach around the corner at the bar there by the window looking depressed as all hell. And I go around the corner, like waiting for my drink or something. I say, Hey Zach, what's up? He's like, Hey Ben, what are you guys uh, celebrating? Uh, something, something cool happening. And I'm like, Oh yeah, it's really amazing. We just uh, sold our show to Fox today. Uh, a talk show, sitcom hybrid show. And he literally goes, Fox, you sold a show to Fox, man. That's incredible, Ben. That's just so great. And he was so depressed and you could see it was almost, I mean, he couldn't even hide, not the jealousy, not that he didn't want me to have it, but just the like depression that he didn't have that. And he wanted to be there. And he'd had a late night talk show many years earlier, late world with Zach it was on billboards everywhere. And then that was at a, that was a, you know, a Zenith. Now he's at a, at an Adir much lower place. And Zach Alvinekis was like jealous of me that day. And my show went away and then he became superstar Zach Galvanakis. So it's just always meaningful to me because you really never know when you're up, if you're going to stay there, if you're down, if you're going to stay there. And even superstars had times when they were super not confident. And so again, it's, it just gives you that confidence to know that like, as long as you check yourself with reality and check in and see, do you have the talent? Do you have what it takes to make it like, be honest with yourself? Do you have what it takes to make it talent wise? And then do you also have the wherewithal to persevere through a lot of ups and downs? If you do, then you're going to make it eventually because even the greats didn't know for sure. You can't know for sure. Your proudest moment in show business. Wow. That's a hard question. I mean, it's a tie really between idiot test premiering to great ratings and to critical success and to audience success or idiot test getting picked up for a third season, which really made me feel like, wow, a third season. Now it's like a bona fide thing. It's part of TV history. It's something people love a tie between that and probably honestly edged out by getting my own hour stand-up special because it's just the most pure. It's my comedy for an hour on one of the greatest places you could have a stand-up special delivered to the, to the country. And after so long of trying to get, hoping to get that respect and hoping people notice that you're a really good comedian and, and to have literally me in a microphone when I started out, not being able to even speak in front of 10 people in class, me in a microphone being broadcast for an hour on international television is pretty exciting. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel your career to the next level. I will say my biggest professional disappointment was when the Glebe show with Fox did not get made and they cleared that slate of executives and didn't make our pilot because it was the culmination of all I'd wanted. And the, since I was a kid, I wanted this talk show and then did it in college for four years and then did it on Lampoon for three seasons and then partnered with the best person possible, Lauren Michaels and Joanne Alfano and making the show, writing the pilot for nine months, closing the deal, co-EP on a show that Lauren Michaels is EPing and, and then it goes away. I was just floored and, at the, and it was during a very tough year on me emotionally and my dad went through colon cancer at the time and all these things and, and um, 
I was just drained and I didn't, I had at this point been creating and controlling every aspect of every bit of my career for at least nine years at that point straight. And I just wanted a break. I needed a break. And so the way I got through that was to shift tactics for a while and say, I can't have to have this, this like intense neurotic control of every moment of my career until the day I die. I have to be able to ebb and flow. And it came from a piece of wisdom that my mom gave me, which was sometimes you lead life and sometimes life leads you. And you can't need to always be in the driver's seat. So after that happened, I just decided to make peace with the fact that I'm going to take a break from leading it right now and just see if my talent and my ability to deliver when opportunities come my way can be enough to sustain me for a while. And luckily it did for the next many years. I got The Real Wedding Crashers and I got a movie and then I got Chelsea Lately and became a headliner as a stand-up comedian. So I guess I'm doing a lot of work still, but I wasn't like creating shows and like trying in every way possible to like, I wanted just to also enjoy and also live a little bit in my twenties and, and gain that experience I could write about later and could fuel me. And it was so great to know that you can still have a career as long as you work hard when the opportunities come and you're not being a lazy bum and doing nothing that you can continue as long as each year gets a little bit better and you're climbing a little bit more every year that you're going to get where you want to go and you can always get back in that driver's seat at some point and say, let me drive again and helps, you know, Kevin Smith while very stoned gives you that kick in the ass. Last question. What advice do you have for the young person who's growing up in any town and has the obstacles that you went through and just trying to figure out how to get to the next level, not just as an artist, but also as somebody who can work behind the scenes as well and have that kind of career that you're having? What I would tell people is that life is hackable. Life's a lot more achievable than you think. It seems sometimes like there's insurmountable odds when you look at it that way, because perspective is everything in life. So when you look at it, that you're just one of 8 billion people and everybody wants to succeed and there's so many odds against you in any given career and in the entertainment industry, there's so many no's and so much bullshit you have to put up with and so much fakeness and so much putting yourself on the line and getting crushed down in any side, but in front of the camera and not creating shows, writing shows, you get fired, the show gets canceled, the show never gets made, the show doesn't get picked up. It's a web series. You're getting paid $5 and a bucket of chicken, as you like to say. And, um, and it seems insurmountable. And if you have personal issues, whatever your insecurities are, you're nervous, you're insecure, you have speech problems, whatever it might be. The advice I'll give you is to shift your perspective and realize that as often as the case with problems we see, the opposite is actually true. In fact, life is super achievable, super hackable. There's 8 billion people, yes, but all those people find a way, most of those people, a lot, great percentage, great majority find a way to make a living, to make it work, to provide for themselves. And if you're lucky enough to decide to pursue your dreams, realize that people want the content that you want to create. You're not having to like drive a, 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 a tractor up a hill with no wheels. People want that tractor to get there. It's just, is your tractor going to be the, one of the ones that get there? Some tractors are going to make it up and are make it to the top. So you have to realize that you, if you use your, all your skills and have the kind of strong ego, that's a real ego 
that is able to admit mistakes, that's able to adjust, able to learn, not a fragile ego that says, I don't want to work hard, so people that work hard are assholes, and if I admit a mistake, I'm weak. No, if you admit a mistake, you're strong. If you admit, don't admit mistakes, that's when you're weak, when you try to cover up for your failings instead of improving on those failings and learning from your mistakes. And if you have problems that are more personal, they're even holding you from pursuing anything like a speech problem or like a fear of public speaking or like anything of that nature, you have to realize that you're far less important than you think you are. Your problems are far less insurmountable than you think. Because with public speaking, people's greatest fear with speech problems, I realized what was giving me blocks was I was so nervous. I thought that you needed to be perfect, that the people that make it are infallible. And it's not true. The Zach Galifianakis's get depressed and don't know if they're going to be successful. They're not some impenetrable genius. The Dave Chappelle's freak out and leave their show and say, I don't even want this thing I thought I wanted. And if you're afraid to speak in front of people because you think everyone's judging you and looking at you and all the lights are on you, get over yourself. The fact is that people are glad they're not the one talking. People are glad that, that they get to just absorb. They're, if they're there at all listening, if they're paying any attention, they're there for the information, not for your speaking style. People have very low expectations. Junk rises to the top all the time. So if you have any talent skill, if you work hard as well, your shit can climb pretty quickly. Eventually, you're going to get to the top and then take one step further and realize that you think your, your dream is so important. You think your thing is so much better than anybody else. Fuck you. You're not any more important than a person working at McDonald's feeding people. He's feeding people. People will die if we don't want people giving people food. If your web series doesn't make it, no one's life's any worse off. So don't think it's such rarefied air that it's so important. It's just another job. It's one that you choose to want to do because your own personality wants it. So great, do it. But don't act like it's the most important thing curing cancer. You're not. You're just pursuing something fun that brings joy to people. So it should be joyful when you do it and take a step further back and realize that any job on earth, producing a TV show, doing stand-up comedy on a special to millions of people, serving people at McDonald's, being a secretary in an office, all of it is of the exact same importance. And all of that is of no real importance in the grand scheme. Because take a step back, we're floating out of control on a marble in outer space in a vast, unknowable universe. You think you're, the details of your speech or the way you paused before the one fucking word or the thing nobody remembers five minutes later means shit? It doesn't. It's just a journey. So have fun. Pursue what matters to you. And just do your best. If you leave it all on the table, success or not, you're going to feel amazing about your life. Because the only thing that's depressing is when people feel like they could have done more. If you gave it your all, then you just roll the dice and see where they land. And I think you'll find more often than not that that's exactly what will make you succeed. Awesome. Ben, today you definitely left it all on the table, buddy. Thanks, man. Thank you for giving it your all on this podcast. This was amazing. Thank you, Barry. You, your podcast is incredible. I love listening to it when I can. And it's been so fun working with you over the course of my career because you're a guy who's so respected in this industry and you have this like great Zen way about you. And uh, one of my goals was to be on this podcast one day. So check that off the fucking list. Wow. That means a lot when you do something like this and you're trying to do something during lunch times and trying to make an impact on people and 
because I know I love the impact you have on me and I love the fact that you say I have an impact on you and your career and it's so great to be able to do this where you can come on and now you're going to make an impact on so many other people and hopefully that'll be great and inspirational for so many people. Thank you so much, Ben. You know how I feel about you. I love you, buddy. I love you too, man. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week. And one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. Landing on Linda Campbell from Duncanville, Pennsylvania. Congratulations, Linda. Also, I figure I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on DVW 29, April 19, 2015. Fascinating podcast. Keep it going. Five stars. Being a fan of Jay Moore and the Moore Stories podcast, I was introduced to Barry Katz and interested in his podcast. Since then, I have not been disappointed in hearing the stories his guests have told about their personal and professional experiences. I highly recommend this podcast to anyone who enjoys comedy, biographies and learning about the behind the scenes inner workings of the entertainment business thanks a lot dvw29 i appreciate it and congratulations all right this has been another episode of industry standard with me and the max mullion family and alex so thank you very much everybody and as always if you enjoyed the podcast <laughs> tell all your friends if you didn't enjoy the podcast <laughs> Go fuck yourself, because it was great. Ben Glee was so brilliant. If you don't watch a special on Showtime, you're all a gangster. You're a, you're a complete idiot. You're just one of the dumbest dumbos that's ever, that's ever lived. God bless. And uh, we'll see you next time on Industry Stranded with me, Barry Katz. <laughs> Thanks, <buddy. laughs> They say it's the glory I'll scream your name and Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamer they have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Did
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.